comics, movies, music, video games, technology, Blu-ray, television. This is the HHW LOD Podcast Network. Today's podcast is brought to you by Audible.com. Get a free audiobook download at www.audibletrial.com slash outnowpodcast. Over 100,000 titles to choose from for your iPhone, Android, Kindle, or MP3 player. That's www.audibletrial.com slash outnowpodcast. Previously on Out Now with Aaron and Abe. Hey, Aaron. What's coming out this week? Uh, nothing of interest, really. Uh, hmm. Well, what do we do? Oh, I've got some plans. Like what? Let's just say it's all taken care of. Well, that's nice and all, but what is taken care of? Let's just say the chickens are coming home to roost. Hmm. Okay. Well, that's even more confusing than the first statement. Let's just say... Whatever, man. I'm gonna get out of here. Abe? Abe? Ha! It's all falling into place. Wait a minute! I forgot my introduction! We are now recording, and this is Out Now with Aaron and Abe. I am Aaron, and as always, this is... Abe! Hello! 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 Thanks, Bono. Um, <laughs> Out Now is a film podcast with Abe and I discussing new movies weekly. However, every now and then, depending on either a lack of new releases worth discussing or just because we felt like it, we do bonus episodes, such as this one. Woo. This week, we have a collection of different things going on here. Assuming everything all goes to plan because we're recording slightly out of order, we're going to discuss a number of the foreign films from 2013. We're going to have a, sp- a bonus review of I, Frankenstein, featuring Jordan Grout. And our friend of the show, Adam Gentry, has returned from the Sundance Film Festivals, and he's going to give us a lowdown on what happened during his experience in Utah this past January. You just give the people what they want, man. Exactly. It's actually become pretty. It's become tradition. Every year, we've had Adam talk about his experience up in, up over in us at Sundance. So. Every, uh, yeah, every year that we've been on. Yeah. <laughs> but we do have a bulk of this episode that is going to be focused on the various uh, foreign films from 2013 and joining us right now in this recording uh, we have from fast film reviews he just won a grammy for best solo funk album featuring an accordion mark hoban hi everyone congratulations on the grammy (laughs) yeah thank you very much it's a good door stop right yes grammys um that that see that reference will make no sense like a week later when there's no Grammys, let alone years <laughs> from now. It's like why is he talking about the Grammys? Like that doesn't matter. <laughs> but I stuck with it. I'm sticking with my guns. Yeah, we should use MTV Music Award. Right, just <laughs> <laughs> what is edited every year? Denver Broncos. <laughs> that applies this year. <laughs> that applies this year now. <laughs> Denver Broncos. <laughs> Let's watch that Simpsons episode. Um, all right. <laughs> Um, let's get to some announcement stuff here. Um, our Acolytes episode, Mark actually helped out with this one, uh, among many of other guests. A- Abe and I, and friend of the show, Scooter, we recorded our Accolades episode, which is basically where Abe and I came up with a number of different categories 
um, that apply to the various films of 2013. We have a lot of our frequent guests of the show all fill out answers for these categories, like best actor, best actress, and then more fun ones like favorite comedic scene and stuff like that. And we recorded that whole episode. We got all those thoughts together and just like read them all out. And that episode is now up. I'm quite happy with it. I thought it's a lot of a lot of fun. Abe and I are reading the results along with Scooter and his crayon written answers that he had. Um, so yeah, that's amazing, by the way. Yeah. So that's that's available now. You can check that out. It's on iTunes and HWLOD, all the places, well, all of our other shows. Um, what else? Oscar prediction show. We have like a month until the Oscars, but always nice to shout this out now. We tend to do it. We've done an Oscar prediction show every year, and we're going to do that once again. And uh, so just saying, that's coming, and that'll be in the works. That'll probably come closer towards the time of Oscars, so our predictions can be somewhat close, and Abe can be somewhat kind of close. <laughs> I'll be more accurate in our predictions. I like the I like the promises you make. Yeah. Well, I I got you that pony for your birthday, so promise kept. <laughs> yeah, but I mean it's plastic; it doesn't move. <laughs> it has some other kid's name on it. Like I don't know. The Denver Broncos. Yeah. <laughs> um, iTunes reviews and ratings good to get those. Helps out the show. Helps other people find our show because we certainly like to get more listeners because people seem to like it. So want to have more people like it. So there you go. Help us out. iTunes review rating takes a couple seconds, maybe, and Abe will feel so much better than he does right now. Yeah, I'm not feeling that great. But you're sticking with it anyway, Abe. I am, yes, yeah. I'm, I'm proud not, of you. I'm physically not feeling great. Yeah. Yes. I'm proud of you anyway. Oh, thank you. Oh, I'm proud of you. Yeah. For sticking with it, too. Skype hug. <laughs> oh. <laughs> um, I can feel your presence. Because it's a bonus episode, we're going to kind of ditch some of the other things we generally do, but we still have some of the good ones, too. Like, know everybody. Um. I, I have one question. I know we're not going to do like a full extended Know Everybody segment this week, but I have one question just because I thought this was a good one to ask. Um, it goes as follows. Have you ever disliked a performance in a foreign film? For any of you guys? Either. Mm. I ask this because I'm like, obviously, foreign films, not everyone necessarily speaks the, the language that the people in the foreign film are speaking. And I think while you can certainly feel what an actor's conveying on screen and you can see the passion or whatever would have you in the performance regardless of not understanding the language even though you're reading the subtitles i i'm always curious if the some if somebody that does speak the language or is you know from the country that the film originates from or what have you i wonder if they can tell something that mm-hmm. we can't tell in that performance based on how they're acting knowing the language it's I've like, had this thought too, and I've, I've often wondered about what what I guess the locals think of the actual acting, and maybe it sounded great to us, but it was like a piece of crap for for uh, the other guy. So. To give you a key example, I know um, Chow Yun Fat's performance in Crouching Tiger, Hidden Dragon, which I think is solid from my perspective. I've I've heard that that has been kind of not liked as much by. I, I was actually going to bring that example up too, because uh, some folks say that his Mandarin was. It's it's sort of quote unquote mainland Mandarin, whereas everyone else there spoke like Taiwanese Mandarin or something. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, it's, it's interesting. But I don't really have an example because like, again, everything sort of hits me as wow, that's a really good job. But that helps too. But it's, that's the other thing. It's like how often do you see like really horrible foreign movies? Like generally, you see them because they get so much acclaim. Right. Another thing too is the converse is true as well. I mean, how do you judge a great foreign performance? You know, a lot of times true. I mean, I I think you can kind of go by sort of like the way that they're acting, and and but it's sort of the same thing. It's kind of hard to judge sometimes. How do you know that the performance is good when you don't speak the language? I'm trying to think of when the last time a foreign, well, oh no, it was uh, Emmanuel Rivera, right? From yeah, uh, yeah. Moore last year, yeah. 
And then obviously, like, Roberto Bonini won the Oscar for Best Actor. I'm trying right, to think exactly. of other foreign-nominated performances. I think uh, Sophia Loren was also nominated mm-hmm. um, way back. And this doesn't necessarily count, but, like, Robert De Niro won, for, and he spoke no English in Godfather Part Two in his performance. <laughs> I'm trying to think. I feel like I've seen, like, like really, like, intense, like, over-the-top performances, like... And not even singling out one, but I, I know like Pedro Almodovar, Almodovar, Alvadovar films, those sometimes have like very spirited performances, but I can't think of one that like stuck out as like, oh, that's annoying. Or, like that's, doesn't feel genuine or feels mm-hmm. too much. Well, I've dropped yeah, the gauntlet. Yeah. So. Yeah, seriously. <laughs> the question that will remain on. Oh, you know, speaking of Roberto Benigni, mm-hmm. I never saw this movie, but he did uh, a version of Pinocchio. Oh god, yeah. And I, I've heard that that was Pretty, pretty awful. Yeah, that'd be. I guess that'd be my. I never saw it either. I guess I mean, that's the go-to. It's not even. A, I don't even think people think it's a good movie, but that was probably a pretty bad performance. I mean, he's, you know, he's a what forty-five-year-old man at that time, like playing, you know, small wooden boy. <laughs> was, he, was he playing Pinocchio? Yeah, he plays Pinocchio. <laughs> Obviously, Abe, I gotta find this poster now because. It's... So I was thinking, wait, is he playing Geppetto? I don't know. No, that would make too much sense. <laughs> All right, well, <laughs> this might be our first time we've ever had a, an unsolved know everybody question, but that's for now how we play. You stumped the panel, yeah. Karen. I, I did it. <laughs> I've been trying. <laughs> it took me two and a half years. <laughs> I got there. Almost three, actually. I'm saying two, 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 two uh, and three. Quarters. Two months. Yeah, yeah two, two months, months will be three years. Yeah. Should do something for that. We'll have another <laughs> internet hug. <laughs> that's the only time <laughs> when you're sick or when we celebrate a milestone. Um, all right, let's move on. Let's get that now, quickies. Yeah. Each weekend out now, we go over, well, in this case, we go over a lot of main movies of the week, but we always have some other movies we might have seen during the week as well, so we have a segment called that now, quickies. Yeah. I'll start with Abe, because I already know the answer. Have you seen any anything else this week, Abe? Yeah, I finished, actually, Saving Mr. Banks, and uh, I still feel the same way I felt last time, even though some of the characters sort of redeemed themselves. It still seems as though both the characters are kind of nasty, and they were basically nasty for the entire thing. Your point about Colin Farrell being in more than half the movie is accurate, and it's kind of weird to see him not get that as much love. But I did like uh, Jason Schwartzman a lot. Um, he and Paul Giamatti were Paul probably Giamatti. my favorite characters in that movie. So, would you say you like the film? Because that seems very unclear to me. <laughs> like, uh, I, not really. No, I, I'm I'm like fifty fifty on it. Though so. it's weird that I stopped right when everything stopped getting nasty. And then I picked it up right when everything started getting good. So it's hard for me to put those two together. I probably shouldn't have stopped midway. It's like stopping Chim Chim and then not hearing the Uri Chim Chim Chiru. <laughs> right. <laughs> you said those you mean no animated penguins. I didn't tell you that. <laughs> uh, Mark, have you seen anything else uh, this week? Uh, well, the local theater chain is showing old classic movies, and uh, they showed uh, Ferris Bueller's Day Off, and I saw that. And I loved it. I mean, I've seen it before, uh, but it's been a long time, and uh, it it definitely holds up. I, I liked it. Part of it is probably nostalgia, but uh, no, it was really good. What do you put that in your uh, in your John Hughes realm? Uh, I'd put it. I mean, I think I probably like some of the things like uh, Sixteen Candles and Breakfast Club more, but but I would probably put it right after that. So I, I probably like third. There, there's actually a scene in the movie, too, because, okay, John Hughes wrote Home Alone, 
And there's a scene where uh, uh, the principal basically breaks into the house and Jennifer Grey is in the house and she kind of like beats him up. And it reminded me of Home Alone <laughs> a little bit. Like there's like some scenes in there where she like, I don't know, it's just very she subtle. She him but... in the face and breaks his nose. Yeah. And then she runs up the, the stairwell and, and it's just oh, sort of yeah. like, oh, and, like and, it was her, and the look of the house is kind of like uh, Kevin's house in Home Alone. So. Yeah, they all live in Shermer. Right. Sure, exactly. Illinois, of course. Yeah, no, I, I, like, I'm not, I'm not a person that is a huge fan of John Hughes films, um, for whatever reason. I just never grew on to them as much as a lot of other people did. Um, but I, Ferris Bueller is the one that I, I would say is my favorite of his directed movies, uh, for sure. And I also really like Weird Science, actually, but I've never, oh, like, yeah. I never That's got into, a Breakfast Club or, um, 16 Candles, all that much. Or pretty in pink, because obviously you'd assume I was a pretty in pink fan until I told you otherwise. So. I yeah, I did. And I was like, man, I just see him jamming out to the OMD song. Yeah. <laughs> um. All right. I've I've seen a few uh, other films this week, um, which are um all well, two of them are on Netflix. Watch instant actually. Um, but the first is Computer Chess. Uh, I know we brought this one up before. Mark, did you get around to seeing Computer Chess yet? Or? I I did. Well, you know what? Actually, I I didn't finish it, so that's kind of telling, right? A little bit. You know? Yeah. Actually, it... I I tweeted something about Computer Chess recently. You want you want me to read it? Yes, I do now. <laughs> <laughs> I I wrote, I wrote um if filming a nerd convention in a shabby motel like a black and white cable access TV show sounds appealing, please do see the movie Computer Chess. Yeah, that's. What's neat about it's like it feels like computer chess is like the setup for something that could be like potentially really good. Like it, like it's going for a very specific aesthetic because, like you said, it is filmed like a like a basic cable like tournament program. But it seems like it could be made as something like in the vein of like a, a Christopher Guest mockumentary type film. And it just it doesn't really try to go there. It tries to be, I guess, cleverer than that. And it is it wasn't very entertaining because of it. What so it confused me because like it got so many like so much high regard and like I just yes. don't, I just don't really see it like it showed up on a whole bunch of top, like, 10, top lists. ten lists and I, yeah I don't understand it I mean I kind of sort of enjoy the aesthetic of it because they recreate the era very well it feels like someone stumbled upon an old VCR tape and stuck it in a TV set and started and they started watching this film VHS. But, yeah, What's no, that? it's fil- it's filmed. It's like four by three, black and white, like shot on like on videotape. But you know that that hurts it because you know after a while it's just it's so ugly looking and mm. and I don't know. I mean, it's just it's it's very hard to watch. And then it, there's really nothing. I mean, I can't you know I, I really can't give a full review um, without having finished it. And I I may go back to it to finish it, but like what you're saying, Aaron, is not encouraging me. I mean, I, I had. Have- I can say I that it, you were gonna like it more. I can, I can say that. I mean, I liked being, I liked having seen it the once. Like, I, I it's not, it's not really a movie that I'm like, oh man, you gotta see Computer Chess. But I like, I don't mind, I don't mind the fact that I've seen it this one time because I do think it tries to do some interesting things in the kind of towards the the second half of it where it becomes more than just like a really, really, really dry comedy about computer nerds <laughs> programming well, then, chess programs there's, there's something too there's another group staying at the motel like some kind of a of touchy-feely yeah. group like getting in touch with their feelings or something and i that seemed like i started to see the beginnings of these two groups interacting but it, it wasn't interesting at least what i saw 
yeah, it's really it 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 does it does call fall fairly flat for the most part, but I mean it had some things going on, and there were some characters I liked seeing in the film. So I mean it it's a it's an incredibly mild recommendation for people that really want to seek out you know really very very indie and art house type films, but yeah, computer chess, it's out there. Um, what else? I uh, I finally saw the act of killing, which I've been wanting to see for a long time now. Also on Netflix streaming. Also on Netflix streaming. Um, I know Mark, you've seen it as well. Uh-huh. Um, that's a that's a rough one. Oh man, that I I really enjoyed the um enjoyed enjoy no I enjoyed um the, it's hard the different to say that. yeah the I enjoyed the different questions it opened up regarding what was going on in this film. This is the film that uh, that documents the. Indonesian government essentially, which is made up of these kind of death squads. Uh, these people, these people that were in charge of murdering just ton, just thousands of people after a kind of a what was it a government, a failed government coup, and they're just kind of still in power. And it just goes over these people's lives now and how they've adjusted to being still being in power and what what they've done since. And they recreate a lot of their crimes in this film like the as reenactments uh, basing them off of what's inspired them in life and it's i found it fascinating it's certainly very dark and yeah. while it's obviously not explicit it's not like it's showing you you know actual film footage of them killing people it is giving you a depiction of their mind frame i guess involving these kind of actions and it's is it's a trip I tell you. It's a weird one. When Mark Hoban had talked about it, I think a, a couple weeks back or something like that, I, I went on to the, the interwebs and I looked up the description and I looked up some still photos. And yeah, it looks very disturbing, um, especially from the, the premise of the film in which these folk are recreating these, what you had said, these terrible atrocities and through their own eyes. And it's very, uh, I, 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 I hesitate to watch it. So yeah, that's the act of killing. Uh, last film up before we move on. Um, I saw I Declare War. Do you remember this film, Abe? I sort of do. That sounds very familiar. Uh, Mark, uh, you know that's the one with like the kids where they 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 make like or the kids have a live action or some kind of war thing. Kind of kids. Kind of. Yeah. Um, it's it's a film I'm about. Not very, I'm not being it, very descriptive. I'm sorry. No, you're not. It's a film about twelve year olds playing capture the flag. Um, they have they have sticks and things that they're using as weapons, but the film. It, it shows it shows their fantasies coming to life basically like while they're holding they're not holding real weapons it does go in and out of showing them having actual weapons in their hands as if what they're imagining is like real and there's just some specific rules and the movie's all about them just playing a capture the flag game and you get to see kind of the, the friendships being tested for various reasons and different teammates doing different things and stuff it's it's clever i i enjoyed it i think it was a, it was a it's not. It's not like because it's you know it's 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 kids and they're you know pretend killing each other, but it's not something like as outrageous as like battle royale or the, even the Hunger Games for that matter. Okay, it's, I was gonna mention battle yeah, royale. It's, yeah, it's 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 purely make believe. Although these kids are you know they're twelve years old, they're swearing up a storm in this movie. That's for sure. <laughs> uh, are they smoking like in Son of Rambo? That French kid? Uh, not, well, there is one kid that does smoke, I guess. So yeah, Son of Rambo is actually a good comparison, although it's just way more, way more profanity-laden than Son of Rambo is. Um, so yeah, that's, uh, I Declare War. Uh, yeah, so that's, uh, I don't know, quickies. Tim? Before we move on to other things that are far more important than what we're about to do, we are going to cut over to 
what I discussed with Jordan about his viewing experience of I, Frankenstein. So uh, for those of you that have really needed to hear the, the good word on box office smash, I, Frankenstein, let's, uh, let's go to that right now. All right, so here we are. I am now with Jordan Grout, and we are going to discuss I, Frankenstein. I have not seen the film, but Jordan, you have. Oh, I have. Okay, so what's what's your general impressions on I Frankenstein before we get into it a little more? Okay, I when when Aaron Eckhart signed on to this movie, I imagine he just went home and wept all night long. I he I think he's such a good actor, and he he deserves so much better than this. Like Kate Beckinsale is is good. She's not great, and she you know she fits well with those underworld movies. But Eckhart, he's he, he's a, a really solid actor. I think he's he's one of the most underrated actors working today. And I saw this movie Sunday night by myself. Uh, does that does that count for the theater as well? How many people were in the theater? It, oh no, I was by myself in an empty theater. <laughs> okay. <laughs> and uh, when they they told me at the box office that a total of 32 people had seen the movie all day long. <laughs> Opening weekend, Sunday, 32 people. Um, it's it's um, it's really boring. Once again, kind of, kind of like uh, Jack Ryan. It, it's it's really bad, but it's not that fun. It's it's, um, it's, it's not, not it's not like a goofy fun time in the theater where it's like we know how bad this is, but go along with it. Yeah, it's I just... kept thinking of um, Hansel and Gretel. Witch Hunters, a movie yeah. I really enjoy because it's stupid, but everyone involved knew what they were making and they had fun with it. It's a movie that makes fun of itself the entire time. Uh, it's it's a blast. This it's so serious. Uh, it's like, do you realize you were making a movie called I Frankenstein? And first of all, you, you there's no explanation why it's called I Frankenstein. Oh, okay. <laughs> <laughs> we don't start um, with like Frankenstein building the monster that becomes Aaron Eckhart's character, <laughs> because well, the whole like prologue it, it goes through the novel. Okay. But I thought walking in, it was he the monster was going to take the name of Frankenstein, thus the name I Frankenstein. No, Miranda Otto, he he's rescued by gargoyles, <laughs> and they bring him to their palace. And she says, I'm going to call you Adam. And that's his name for the rest of the movie. Adam. And then the very okay. <laughs> end of the movie, there's this voiceover where he's standing on the building and he says, like, I am something. I am something. I am something. And you're thinking, let me guess what the last line's going to be. And he says, I Frankenstein. It's like, well, you're not called Frankenstein. You're, you're, you were given this boring name of Adam. And you were never called Frankenstein before that. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, it, it makes absolutely no sense. So, um, so basically, this has the best title since I still know what you did last summer. Oh, it's this is even better. <laughs> and of course, Bill Nighy's in it because if uh, you you need a, a a great actor who will take C grade material, it's it's uh, Bill Nighy. It seems like Screen Gems has like black blackmail material on Bill Nye at this point to just yeah. like all those underworld and movies. He's the kind of actor that at this point he he's just so boring in these villain roles because he, you, you you can 
tell how he's going to say a specific line. He has the same inflections for all of these villain roles for specific lines. Um, and it's his name is, uh, oh, God, it's like Nabarius or something like okay. that. Like, oh, that's that's so, so clever. It's so subtle. Uh, oh, John McClane Jr. is in it. Oh, Jack Courtney, he's back. Yes, yes, and um, this is really depressing since I like him a lot in Spartacus and I liked him in Jack Reacher, and yet he's yeah. done now a good day to die hard and I Frankenstein, which I guess they're not bad decisions necessarily because you're trying to get yourself out there as a young actor. Yeah. But my God, <laughs> there's some bad things going on. Ugh. And I mean, he's not bad in the movie, but it's just a stupid character. He he's that he he's one of the gargoyles who are the good guys by the way gargoyles really the gargoyles are the good okay i have no yeah. idea what the plot of this movie is by the way what's the, oh, what well. are the bad guys then i'll explain in a few moments okay so he's it's it's not that complicated okay so he's he's a gargoyle but he's he's like the uh the gargoyle that's against frankenstein and he's like we should kill him right now wow. so the demons don't get him blah 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 and you think okay well his arc is gonna be uh, he'll come to respect frankenstein and they'll work together I'm, I'm going to spoil a little bit here, but I doubt anyone cares. So there's this moment in the middle of the film where he attacks Frankenstein. They're having this battle, and they fall out of the building, and he falls on his sword, and he dies, Jai Courtney. Okay. <laughs> and uh, so that that's how he leaves the movie, the the most unexciting way imaginable. He just, oh, he just falls on his sword. You'd think he would sacrifice himself at the last battle, and... Okay, so the plot. What's the day in the life of a gargoyle, by the way? Like, are they are they stoned during the day, or are they people, or...? Uh, it, it depends on their mood. Oh, okay. What I got <laughs> out of the movie. Some want to be stoned, some just want to walk around, and when they have huge battles in the middle of London, citizens... Or I have no idea what's going on because are these they battles, very, are they are they used to like gargoyles like oh there's another gargoyle or they, <laughs> they must be because these battles are huge and they're loud and there's explosions going on in the streets and the streets are empty there there's no one looking out the window thinking that's kind of weird that there are flying creatures and explosions I should probably call the police uh, no one reacts. In fact, this, they, they did not have enough money for extras because the, the, the streets are completely empty. And it's like 11 p.m. these battles are going on. Like, well, London has people outside at 11 p.m. They probably put on the, uh, the old gargoyle sirens or when ducked and covered. Yeah. So the plot. Okay. The plot. Nabarius, some like demon prince. Yeah. He's a demon. Okay. He, uh, he wants Frankenstein's journal. Because he's looking to reanimate uh, corpses so he can um, place demon spirits in them so they can defeat the gargoyles who work for God. So that's the whole, whole plot. Is they've spent 200 years looking for Frankenstein's journal. Where were uh, they looking? Who <laughs> knows? Uh, but but like, you find years is a long time. It's like yeah. I, I feel like I could do a lot in like thirty days, like traveling and whatnot. And, uh, especially when you there's have this amazing scene at the beginning where they try to reanimate a uh, a rat, a stitched rat, 
And I, I just want to play the scene on loop over and over on my television when I have guests over. Um, it, it's, it's one of those, you, you don't know how crazy it is until you see the sequence. But anyway, they get the journal. Where they and they find it? out, where was, oh. Where's the journal? Well, the gargoyle is. Oh, of course, yeah. And, uh, <laughs> it took 200 yeah. years to be like, hey, Adelaide, gargoyle's happening? Nah, let's go everywhere else. And somehow he gets it. Honestly, I forgot how they, they acquire this journal towards the end. And he's looking through it, and he says, oh, they used uh, uh, seven electric eels. That's what Victor used. Uh, seven electric eels equals such and such watts. Well, that's what we got to use. All this, right. This takes place in modern times, correct? Yeah. Okay. So you go to this huge, uh, like, Matrix-type farm of, of bodies just hanging everywhere. And there's this, this reactor in the middle, and they put in the wattage, and they start reanimating the corpses. And you think, well, 200 years? You couldn't have figured this out? Like, you needed someone to say, like, oh, what does a seven, what, what do seven electric eels um, make? Use that. You'd think they would do trial and error in 200 years and figure it out. Nope. Well, they were spending so much time searching every corner of the Earth because 200 years, again, is a long time to be searching for something. Yeah. Yeah. And uh, Frankenstein lives in, a, in an apartment in an abandoned factory somewhere. It's a bad movie. And it may sound fun, what I'm saying right now. You may think, that doesn't sound so bad. I, I may check that out. It's how, really how, how are Eckhart's um, martial arts scenes? Oh, it's it, it's that slow motion CGI BS we've seen for years. Okay. Have you have you seen any of the underworld films? I've seen all of them. You have you <laughs> every okay. underworld film I've seen. I'm sorry. I, yes, oh. I'm I was so bored by the first one, which somehow makes the concept of vampires versus werewolves boring that i was like well I don't, I don't need to see more of this so no no thank you <laughs> well this is the same thing with frankenstein demons gargoyles yeah but they finally got rid of that hot chicken leather because who needs that in this kind of movie let's just go with some white guy like yeah, <laughs> that makes more sense stitched up uh stitched up guy yeah that's, um, that's just as hot yeah it's 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 like, we're gonna if we're gonna play to our fans of this genre obviously they don't want to see some female doing anything they want to see some like guy with stitches all over his face that's probably what the guys want to see and it's Set up for a sequel. The teenagers, of course. Of would course. This, would the would, would the sequel be called Roman numeral two Frankenstein? <laughs> <laughs> oh, you know who it does have? Very briefly, I always forget his name. He was in uh, Road Warrior. Um, oh, oh, I know what you're talking about. Um, Bruce, Bruce, Bruce Spence. Yes, Bruce Spence is Bruce in Spence it. Has a cameo. I was so happy to see Bruce Spence. Is he like in makeup, or is he just really tall and just randomly there? No, he he's he's just very tall and wears huge glasses and, and um, very large spectacles. And uh, they kind of set up the sequel because at the end he removes this uh, um, this thumb drive from the computer, which contains all the information on Frankenstein. He runs out, and that's sort of how they set up the sequel like oh the information is still out there they may come for bruce spence next and the sequel i can't wait for the sequel well i should note that i frankenstein came in sixth place at the box office this weekend it made a whopping uh 8.6 million dollars uh coming in behind <coughs> excuse me coming in behind right along the nut job lone survivor frozen and jack ryan all of course 
uh, previous releases that have been out. Some have been out for weeks at this point. And, uh, yeah, so don't think American Hustle quite, or sorry, American Hustle. It's right underneath I Frankenstein. I don't think I Frankenstein. Yeah, I don't think I Frankenstein quite lit up the box office. And I, I, I don't think we're going to see two Frankenstein yeah, anytime yeah. soon. I'm sure there will be a director's cut, though. Maybe yeah, a graphic novel spin off. Actually, I think this is based on it. I think it's based on a graphic novel that's designed by the guy that wrote the screenplay. Actually. Oh, yeah, Kevin Grieve. who, who, like, I who believe he wrote the first Underworld. Who, yeah, he was, he's in all, he, like, he wrote the first Underworld, I think, and he plays, like, one of the, where, he plays, like, the Lycan, one of the Lycans in that movie. Yeah, and he plays Bill Nighy's, um, second in command. Yeah, he seems to in, really enjoy embracing being, cause he's like a, he's like a big hulking guy. Like, he, he, like, he, oh, yeah. Yeah, so, yeah. I mean, if you, who has a really like I believe like I think in all the movies he always has like a gruff kind of voice where he's like we gotta stop the gargoyles. Oh, yes. but like in real this life I think I think is insane. I, I think in real life his voice is very nasally. He's like I am the screenwriter for these movies despite that he's being like a really he's like a really big guy so it's always kind of yeah. That way. He can't have that voice. <laughs> uh, <laughs> it's like the Ray Park um, problem, except you know Ray Parks or Doug Jones not hulking. Yeah, or Doug Jones. There's really not much else to say about I, Frankenstein. All right. Well, because this is such a packed show, I'm going to have to end there. But thank you, Jordan, for your lowdown on I, Frankenstein. I hope everyone that was curious on the out-and-out opinion of I, Frankenstein is satisfied with this handing off to another guest of the show who saw the movie. So. Everybody is so happy. Yeah. Where can people uh, find more of your this work? This is why they come to listen. Yeah. What's that? Where can people find more of your work before we go? Oh, you can go to... Um... Amsterdam Chap on Twitter or damndirtyblog.blogspot.com. All right, great. Thank you as always, Jordan. And oh, thank you. We'll now cut back to the main recording. All right, we're back. That was a great recording, you two. I, I learned so much about I Frankenstein. I probably am not going to go see it. I mean, you have, <laughs> Jordan had things to say, and I certainly listened. <laughs> <laughs> Nailed that. Um, all right. Um, so now we got another thing we're gonna go jump to. We're like a regular news program, here. We're jumping all over the place, different things. Um, as I mentioned before, Adam goes to Sun- the Sundance Film Festival each year, and we're always happy to happy to talk with him about his experience there. So we're now going to jump over to that audio of Adam and I, um, and whoever else might be on that recording. That's telling of how we're <laughs> recording this show um, to talk about the Sundance Film Festival and maybe some other stuff. Okay, so. If everything has gone to plan and this clever editing has worked out, I am now being joined with Mark Hoban Still and Adam Gentry. Hey, guys. And we are going to talk about Sundance, but before we do that, um, we're going to talk about Blue is the Warmest Color. Surprise. I know we, we cleverly cut to this other separate audio recording where you thought we were going to talk about the Sundance Film Festival, but that's going to have to wait because Adam, Mark, and I have to discuss Blue is the Warmest Color, a film, a foreign film, a friend, um, French foreign film came out, was not nominated for Best uh, Foreign Film, even though it won the Palme d'Or, correct? That's correct. Yeah. And um, this is this is a film about uh, a, a woman named Adele, played by Adele Exarchopoulos, who, um, while it, uh, at a young age in high school, she's having thoughts about her, you know, kind of views on relationships and whatnot, and she eventually meets a woman with blue hair, her name is Emma, and the two form a relationship, which develops into something way more intense and the film basically chronicles how this relationship both forms and where it goes from there put it the best i can um it's it's certainly 
quite it's quite epic to say the least because it is it does last a good three hours and gives you a wide range of different emotions from different these different characters involved. But uh, with all of that said, I'm gonna I'll start I'll start with Mark first. Mark, what did you think of the blue is the warmest color? So I really enjoyed blue is the warmest color quite a bit, and I attribute the majority of the the reason for that is the two stunning performances that are at the heart of this film. And uh, both Leah Sedu and Adele Xarkopoulos, yes, nailed it. Um, <laughs> they're both really extraordinary in this film. And I think it, it really conveys sort of this, it, they're, they're, it's, it's really young love. I mean, this Adele is playing this very young woman who is, I guess she would probably be, uh, considered high school if she was in the U.S. It's sort of a secondary school. So she's kind of coming to terms with who she is, and, and she's I don't think she's exactly sure what she wants, and I think the film does a really good job of portraying sort of her innocence and naivete in life, and but and also curiosity. And it, it just seems very honest, and it it seems to come from a very real place, and I don't know anything about this actress, so all I, I can go on is what I see here, but it almost feels like she's, she could be almost playing herself, the performance is that good. And I don't, I don't think she is playing herself, but it's so natural and so genuine that I really was drawn into her story because of her performance. And then also, uh, Leah Seydoux, the woman with the blue hair that she meets, I think is, is really hits the right kind of, she's kind of a little bit, I, she's more experienced and she is sort of uh, kind of a, a woman that she doesn't really know what she's about and and she is kind of dangerous maybe but 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 also sweet and and someone who's very caring towards her as well and i don't know i just think that the way that the movie conveys all these emotions was really uh really well done and it's it's a very sweet and genuine love story it definitely it, it, it's gotten a lot of, uh, I guess, uh, attention because of, yeah. yeah, of before its love scenes, and they are very strong. And I'm going to let Adam talk more about that. But it's it's definitely they're they're very extreme, and I'm not sure if if they needed to be quite as extreme as they were. But given that the story is very honest and i think it, in that respect it does fall it it's it's sincere and so i think that is i don't know it i think it's genuine and so i think it fits within that framework right but overall i really i really enjoyed it and i thought it was a very well done love story adam your thoughts on the film um i kind of hate this movie and it's too bad because I was really looking forward to it. Um, I always watch the Cannes Film Festival with really great interest, and I'm always really excited to see uh, whichever film wins the Palme d'Or and have the chance to you know, see it for myself. So, you know, Blue is the Warmest Color was no exception. I was really excited to see it. Um, and I was really dismayed just by how little I liked the film. I think it's over long. I think the three-hour running time is, is, is far too much to sustain interest. Um, I think there's an element of exploitation at work, with uh, particularly with the sex scenes, and I also think that there's a level of hypocrisy um, present within the script that really keeps it from the honesty 
that I think a lot of its proponents would suggest that it aspires to. Um, I think the first hour or so is pretty good. I, I, I like watching the way the two characters kind of found each other and came together. Um, but for me, it really started to go off the rails during the sex scenes because I really found them to be pornographic. And I'm not suggesting that porn is is necessarily, you know, a good thing or a bad thing. I think it depends, you know, upon the the conduct that's being used in and, and obviously the willingness of the people involved. But what I'm suggesting is that, you know, if I wanted to watch porn, I would just watch porn. You know, I don't... I wasn't really titillated by this material, and I found at a certain point I just started to roll my eyes and get bored. Um, and I know that the actresses themselves have spoken out and said that they really felt exploited um, as time has passed. Maybe they didn't feel that way initially, but now they really feel that the director, whose name I'm not going to be as brave as Mark with the actress's name and try to pronounce the director's name, um, but I know they felt kind of exploited. And then later on in the film, there's a sort of a turn... That, that that happens with the character's relationship. And I just really felt the way it was handled was was really dishonest because I think there were certain certain parallels that should have been drawn and could have been drawn and that any rational person in any kind of real relationship would have drawn. Um, so, and I just think there were certain things also towards the end that were just really silly. And ultimately, I just thought this one was a big swing and an unfortunate miss. This is now where I come in as... The tiebreaker, um, no, not really. But I mean, I am. Um, I guess now I'm coming out this film. I am positive on it. I I'm with Mark in a lot of what he said. But I certainly recognize what Adam, what you have said in case of the of the sex scenes. And I wouldn't go as far, I guess, as you have as describing. I mean, there's certainly a there's an element that suggests, yes, it could be taken as pornographic given how explicit it is and how frequent they become and the, and the length of each individual scene. And I would agree that those are things that take the movie down a notch for me um, as opposed to making it stronger. But in spite of that, really, which is not necessarily the best way to say it, but in spite of these sex scenes, which I can see where the intention is coming from, I guess, but moving around those aspects of the story, I do think there's a very good film here, because, mainly because of uh, Adele Exarchopoulos' performance. I think she's tremendous in this film. I think everything she does in making this story work is, I mean, quite good. I mean, I think the film, can some can build it as a romantic drama, but I think it's much more of a coming-of-age story, and I really like how this film uses her character to explore this kind of up and down of a relationship and show how she develops as a, as a human being who goes from, you know, kind of um, the end of her teenage years into young adulthood. And it's, I, I found it very interesting for that matter. I was not disinterested because of the length or I didn't grow tired, because, weary because of it. And I, I like the way it progressed. I like the different kind of uh, story beats it hit and how it, got to these different points in their relationship and how she interacted with both Emma's character, who I, and I do think Leah Sidhu's quite good in this film as well, but then along with the, the other characters she meets as she goes along. I, there's just a lot, of, a lot of this film that I, I can't say I responded to on a personal level, just because I haven't really experienced things of this nature, but I was certainly into the story that was being told. One of the things I really do like about Adam's take on it, despite the fact that we have completely different uh, points of view of the film is that I do agree that the director does 
this story a disservice at making these love scenes so graphic because their explicitness tends to overshadow the sensitivity of the rest of the narrative, which, yeah, which depicts their association, which is a much tender approach. It, much of this film is a very sweet and genuine love story. And then the, the sex scenes are really extreme. I mean, they're about as extreme as I think I've seen in any mainstream film. And it's not a point of view that I really see uh, mentioned too often. I, I think people sort of acknowledge them, but then just are like, oh, well, that's fine. But yeah, I think, I think that, and Adam, maybe you should bring this up because I've read your review and I really like the fact that you point out that one of the sex scenes that happens at the parents' house is better. And yeah, that's, sure. that's a good point. And since you made it, I, I'll let you do it. Oh, absolutely. Um, yeah, I mean, I, I definitely agree with, with Mark that the sex scenes kind of take you out of the experience. You've kind of got one vibe, if you will, that's been established and then you, the sex scenes kind of take you out of it. Um, well, obviously a lot of attention has come to the fact that the first sex scene is about eight minutes long. Um, and then not too long after there's a second sex scene, which isn't as long, but it's still pretty long. Um, the third sex scene, uh, is the one that Mark was alluding to. And it's this wonderfully tender scene where they're at the, the, the parents, uh, Adele's parents home and she's introduced them to Emma for the first time and pretended that Emma was just her friend that needed to stay over and whatever. And, the scene comes, the, the scene kind of begins towards the end of, of their lovemaking, and it's this wonderfully tender thing because they're trying to be very quiet so not to wake the folks, and it's this wonderfully tender moment between these two characters that doesn't depend on this kind of raw sex. It's the difference between this love scene and the sex scenes that have preceded it. Um, but it's really this character interaction that really works, and for me, I just felt like an approach in which the script and the, the the direction had shown the characters having sex without needing to show the actors having sex. Because I feel like the shock factor that the film is trying to bank on really just does it a disservice. Um, and, you know, particularly, like I said, these characters and their relationship, as Mark and Aaron alluded to, it's tender. You know, particularly in some of the early stuff and the way they kind of get together is, is lovely. And I just was so drawn to that one thing because it's tender, it's caring, and it's so sweet. And I really wished that more of the film had kind of drawn on that because I don't think that the, the arc is a bad arc. I don't think that the, the story is necessarily an unworthy one. I just felt that the way it's told makes it really hard to focus on the truth of the relationship. So I'm curious, because I want to try and move past the sex scenes to get to other... Other issues you had the film, which are things that maybe I, my, myself or Mark might think are praiseworthy. Um, if the if we're able to take out like those scenes, so where are we at now with the film? Like in, in your eyes, I guess. If like we can, if we look past that. Uh, well, are we doing are we doing spoilers at all? Um, I could. You can mention the, the you can mention the fact that there's an affair. I guess. Okay. Um, one of the major problems I have with the film is I felt like there were certain things, certain really basic things that the characters should have been thinking about that they weren't. And I didn't think that was at all honest to the way two people would interact. Um, early on in the film, the only reason that Emma uh, ends up with Adele is because Emma is cheating on her partner um, at the time. And then later on in the film, there's kind of a reversal that happens. 
And it just seemed to me to be so hypocritical that the film goes to such great lengths to make sure that this parallel isn't even mentioned. And one character is really made a martyr of, and I felt it was extremely unfair for this character to be kind of martyred in this way. And I felt like any rational human being in any kind of relationship would have, it would have been the easiest bit of ammunition that they would have had. Um, and so I really felt that those folks that were saying, okay, this is a really honest look at a relationship, this is really honest, this is honest, were ignoring this blatant act of, of you know, narrative dishonesty that was staring them right in the face. To be fair, though, I mean, we don't really know the details of a relationship that Emma was having previous to Adele. Yeah, we do. They, they do explicitly state that, yes, yeah, she was with her, her other partner, and we know that her going out with Adele, she's doing in secret so that her other partner doesn't find out. <laughs> All right. But so which is the part that you – did you want Adele to then – To call her out. Basically. Yeah, to call Absolutely. her out? Just call her out, man. Just do what any normal person would do, which is you know call out the fact that you know the, what you've done is no different than what your partner's done. I mean I don't think it necessarily solves an argument, but I think it's a point that needs to be made. I do think though that people some that is sometimes how pe- people act though, even though it may not be intelligent. I think that is something. And given that there's, I guess, a time jump that happens during this film, I think there. I mean, there could be an application of growing up and having different thoughts on certain circumstances or uh, context of a relationship at that point in one's life, as opposed to when they were quote dumb and young or something like that. I guess it's a way I can, that's what I'm trying to reason it in my own head. I suppose, I'm just saying, you know, I feel like if, it, if I were in that situation, it just seems like a no-brainer for me, as far as what you would, and it's, that's not the only issue I have with the narrative otherwise, I mean, towards mm-hmm. the end of the film, there's a sex scene in a really public place, and it's it's almost unbelievable, because all of a sudden, the restaurant that these two people are in, this very public place, has either been instantaneously emptied, or suddenly filled with deaf and blind patrons. You know, it doesn't make any sense that it would just be kind of randomly thrown in in the, in, in the middle for no real reason and no real purpose. Um, I agree with you there, and that's because I can I can see why that happens, and I can see why it's depicted the same way as many of the others are depicted, yet from a different, you know, based on the things that are happening in that scene, and why I feel it's kind of out of place is because if the film's trying to hit some kind of stylistic point where it's like every the world drowns out around them as they express their love, the film just hasn't shown us that that's something oh, yeah. that, it, that it's trying to achieve or anything. So, I mean, and again, I mean, the, the sex scenes are essentially my biggest problem with the film. And it's, you know, it's not a matter of, like, being a prude or not finding these women attractive, and they very much are attractive. But, I mean, it's just there's... It is, there is a, yeah, there's a level of intensity to these sex scenes that certainly doesn't disinterest me, but makes it, like, not necessarily awkward, but, like, why? Why is this thing, why, why Why did this truck just drive through this wall right here where I was watching this perfectly other thing? I guess. Well, that's the thing, too. I mean, I know that there's this there's this preconception that that a lot of guys would love nothing more than to watch this a film in which two women are having sex. You know, and I and I understand where some people might suggest that that could be attractive to a lot of guys, but I mean, again, I was sitting there just incredibly bored and really wondering, you know, what purpose the director had in trying to show me that amount of sex. I mean, does he think nobody knows how people have sex? 
Do you think how nobody understands how two women have sex? I mean, I'm just sitting there thinking to myself, I don't understand what he's trying to do here. I don't, and, yeah, Adam, I mean, I, I can appreciate that you may not be uh, titillated by it or or shocked or whatever, but bored? I don't know if those scenes would be boring. They were definitely, if anything, I mean, they were, like, shocking or, or I don't know. I actually kind of like, shirt-tugging awkward in, like, a crowded theater of people, through my experience. Like, okay, this is still going. Like, don't don't bring your parents. That's for sure I didn't do that. But, I mean, oh, like, please, it's like... Don't do it. I tried to, and I didn't really argue with that much because I wrote a fairly brief review of, of this film, but there's the idea of like an extended extreme sequence like this could be you can say the same thing for a film like 12 years a slave um where it's trying to be very honest about a brutal depiction of something um in that case violence and slavery but and, I think he, he wants this scene to be something i don't know what I, my feeling is the director wanted the scene to be kind of provocative do you I think that though like, i I'm not sure. I, I mean, I, I don't think he... What, how did you feel that he... Well, I mean, I think there's a layer of that just because it's the act of lovemaking and it's, you know, attractive women doing it. Like, I think that, I mean, that comes with the territory. Um, but I... I Because of just how... Like, it's... <laughs> this is... it's And we got, we got right back into the sex scenes after we tried to move on. It's, it's a matter <laughs> of, like, trying to... I can't, like, distinguish framing of more sensual scenes than as opposed to what this film's trying to do, but I, I do think there's more of, like, a this the movie's trying to just put it in your face as an honest expression of love as opposed to, like, the film trying to seduce you into enjoying the sensuality of these two women as they express right. with each other. I mean, if, if I would be, like, play the devil's advocate and play the other side, and this is a little bit of a critic-y thing to say, but the love scenes are kind of a physical manifestation of the intimacy that we've already seen on an intellectual level. And those conversations that these two women have are really deep, and they're filled with sort of the genuine way that people would really interact with long pauses and the awkwardness of, like, dialogue that isn't perfected. And the scenes go on. I mean, it's a three-hour movie, so there are very long extended sequences of conversation, and I found those scenes endlessly entertaining. Like they could, I I could have just watched these two women talk. I mean, with intelligently in the way that they do in this film, for three hours. I mean, I could have just made a film out of that. It, it was that good. So my point just originally was maybe the the love making was to sort of here's the intellectual side. Now here's the love making side. And the first half is about what brings these women together. The second half is what drives them apart. So. The lovemaking, as with any relationship, is a part of that. And that was probably his, I'm guessing, his intention to, to make it that almost visceral. I did like the some of the, the kind of the meet-cute elements to some of the early going, particularly some of the scenes in the park. There's some really lovely scenes on a park bench and picnic blanket and whatever. Um, and I really want to give credit to the, the director of photography, uh, Sofian Elfani. Because there is an absolutely beautiful lighting in this film. I mean, just stunning. Um, but yeah, I mean, I'm with Mark in that some of the, the early going, there's some really cool moments where you see them talking about things and working through things. And so there's a great scene earlier in the film in which uh, Adele interacts with a, a female classmate who kind of leads her on a little bit, and then there's some rejection that goes on. And I mean, that's a wonderful scene, because it really illustrates this kind of... Uh, this young woman is trying to, to find her identity and find her sexuality and, and find herself. 
and sort of this situation she gets put in, and then it kind of plays beautifully into the rest of the film. Um, so yeah, I mean, I, I agree that there are certain elements that really work. I just think that there's too much in the film that doesn't. That's fair enough. I want to say, because I want to really emphasize how much I liked Adele Xarkopoulos in this movie. I really did enjoy yeah. her performance. And I, the whole way through, as she just goes through kind of this this giant wave of different things. And I, I like the scene you described, Adam, where she interacts with another friend who opens herself up and there's results that come from that. I like the scene that follows that where she interacts with her friends as she's essentially about to be ostracized from her everyday friends to move on to something different. And I, that's a scene I really love. I really enjoy that scene. You're talking in the schoolyard? In the schoolyard, yeah, yes. That's she's a great basically scene. about to get into fistfight. Like it's right. Yeah, that's a good one. I mean, Cause she's so passionate about trying to convince her friends that, you know, she's acting a certain way or is a certain way. And it, it, it's a, it's a solid scene. Um, all right, so so we just we were gonna have it's such gonna be such a long episode. Let's let's wrap it up with the blue of the warm blue is the warmest color review. Let's just say those wacky French and their long sex scenes were just prudes. That's the way to explain it. Away. <laughs> uh, I, I will say the this, the French title of this film is The Life of Adele, chapters one and two, which means there might be a sequel. So I hope you guys enjoy that. <laughs> well, I, I think this just is chapters one and two in one movie. I'm just saying three and four might be coming. I hope so. I hope. <laughs> I was trying to make a prequel joke. I can't think of one, so I'm just going to stop there. Um, well, maybe Samuel L. Jackson will show up in the next one. You didn't see him at the end? It was great. He recruited Adele to be part of the Avengers Initiative. Anyway. With lights in. With that said, I know, uh, Mark, you have to take off here, so I'm glad we were all finally able to discuss Blue is the Warmest Color. I know we've been wanting to do that for some time, so... Uh... Yeah, definitely. I mean, this was uh, one of the major uh, foreign films of the year, so. Certainly one of those noteworthy, regardless of opinion on it. Like, it's one that certainly entered the conversation quite a bit. All right, so that's it. Uh, Mark, I know you got to jump off here. So uh, thanks for jumping on here to talk with us about the film. All right, yeah, thanks. It was fun. I'll talk to you guys later. Great. Okay, have a good one, man. See ya. All right, Adam. There you are. (laughs) There I am. You have recently, now the people have been waiting, they're like, why are they talking about these lesbians? What's going on here? Let's, uh, <laughs> let's get to the other thing that we, snow, that we, that we initially thought. Yeah. You have recently got back from Utah, Park City, Utah, correct? That is correct. You have once again graced us with your presence to discuss your time at the Sundance Film Festival. It's become a yearly tradition for the Out Now with Aaron and Abe show, so. Let's uh let's get into it. So how many how many films did you see this year? Uh, I was there for about a week, and so all told, I saw about twenty two films in about five and a half days. That's quite a bit. <laughs> it was it was intense. I mean, it was one of those things where there were the the my most ambitious day. I went to five screenings, and so you pretty much leave the theater, go back around, get in the tent get back in line and just kind of keep it keep it circulating but it was, it was an amazing experience um you know sundance is, is unique in that you know it's this really strange environment for a film festival the sundance film festival is just an amazing environment to be a part of because you know the, it's this completely strange environment you think for a film festival this little town in the middle of utah in the middle of the winter and yet, the, you know, the creative community comes from all over the world, and it's inspirational just to, to sit around, whether you're on the bus or you're in line or you're talking to people, just to, to be around all these folks that really believe the sky is the limit, and it really kind of, you know, stirs up within you some thoughts and 
projects that you, you know, had, you know, on the back burner for a while and just sort of inspires you to think that maybe, you know, there's a, there's a chance that you could realize some of your own kind of creative dreams. But, but yeah, I saw about 22 films, uh, many of which were good, some of which were pretty bad, and several of which were just kind of meh. So, all right. Uh, all right. I don't know how you want to get into this. But... Um, I should note that this is the first year you're at at, at Sundance film. Like you're actually there to go to Sundance. I know you've been in Slamdance the past few years. That's correct. The last couple of years, uh, I've had Slamdance credentials, and then have managed to get my way, uh, find my way into a couple of Sundance screenings. But this was unique, and this was the first time I had uh, a Sundance industry credential. And unfortunately, wasn't able to go to anything at Slamdance, which is a, a real drag because I really love that festival. Um, but was really excited because you know Sundance and attending that festival has been a, a personal goal of mine for a while. So that was exciting. Rubbing shoulders with Hollywood all stars like Robert Redford and Paris Hilton. Yeah, it seems like a you know, both, at both a certain of point, you just had to lobby to, stay, to get off, stop swinging from the chandelier and you know, leave people alone. Yeah. Um, all right, so let's um, just because we this is going this is going to go long as it is. Let's uh, let's just get into what what were your what were your big highlights of the film festival in terms of the films that you got to see. All right, well there were a couple that I was expecting to be pretty good that were great. Um, for example, the trip to Italy, the follow up to Michael Winterbottom's The Trip starring Steve Coogan and Rob Brydon as semi-fictionalized versions of themselves. I mean, it's fantastic. I mean, it, it, if you like the first film, it's, you know, essentially just a lot more of the same. It doesn't try to reinvent the wheel. I mean, you take these two guys and you put them this time in Italy on another tour of, of restaurants. Uh, but what's really interesting about this one is there's a bit of kind of role reversal going on, where in the first film, Coogan was very much this confident, in-control you know, guy as far as the relationship went. And this one, it's much more Bryden's movie, and Coogan seems a lot softer around the edges. And there are some wonderful bits of humor. There's a great clip on the internet now, it's been circulating, in which they do bits from The Dark Knight Rises in their own inimitable way, which is fantastic. Um, but it's a very self-aware film. There are some great jokes, too, uh, that relate to other films, you know, both classic and contemporary. Um, but it's, it's fantastic. If you, if you love the trip, you're going to love this. And, you know, I really can't wait to see it again. Yeah, that's, um, that, that, definitely that's definitely a film that I'm excited for. I was a big fan of the trip. And it's interesting that you point out kind of how the first film was about more about Steve Coogan's kind of arc or his character, for sake, because he, while he's playing a fictionalized version of himself, he is addressing in that film, he's addressing the fact that he kind of wishes he was more of a, of a star than he actually is. And, well, I would th- I I think that Steve Coogan is a proper star at this point, who's doing more than just being funny guy. I think he has he's shown a lot of bit of talent. I mean, he's up for a best screenplay nomination for Philomena this year. I mean, he's he's certainly proven himself as a as a multifaceted actor as well as comedic performer. Um, so I am curious to see how this film picks up with Rob Brydon and how it tells his side of the story, who's certainly not as well known in America for sure, and you know certainly not as big of a star as. As Tim Coogan and as just you know other kind of popular uh, English-based actors. Well, I mean his his uh, Steve Coogan's you know, 90 seconds on the Grammys last night uh, was funnier and and wittier than anything the host said all evening. You know, so I don't think that's that's surprising. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, it's a fantastic movie, and it's one of those things too. And even if you're not 
particularly, again, if you don't know who these guys are, you don't need to, to enjoy the film. One of my colleagues I saw it with hadn't even seen the first film. And she completely got it, completely was with the humor, and just had a great time. Um, as far as some other films that I, uh, that I really enjoyed, um, my favorite documentary from the festival was called Last Days in Vietnam, which is a film uh, by Rory Kennedy about the Saigon airlift at the end of the Vietnam War. Um, and in that, this film just has a tremendous sense of momentum because you know, I didn't know as much about the Saigon airlift as I, as I perhaps should have. And to, to see the way that she kind of counterbalances this overall historical arc about what was happening you know, chronologically with these incredibly personal stories of, of these incredible things that these Marines you know, were doing and, and these other people were doing in the face of such adversity, I mean, it's, it's stunning. Um, you know, the film just doesn't drag, which is more than I can say for a lot of documentaries, because the common problem you have with a lot of documentary films is that they get to a certain point and then they just begin to repeat themselves. Well, Last Days in Vietnam never really does, and it's fantastic, so I absolutely dug it. Um, other highlights, uh, I really enjoyed uh, a film called Mr. Leo's Corrects about the filmmaker behind um, films like Polix and uh, Holy Motors. Uh, it's really cool because it finds a way to kind of illuminate Corax's creative process while still keeping the man himself shrouded in mystery. Mm-hmm. So that, I saw that the last morning uh, I was at the festival at 9 a.m. Really wanted to sleep in that morning, but I'm really glad I didn't because that was a really fine movie. I really enjoyed the Roger Ebert documentary Life Itself. Oh, you saw that. Great. Yeah. I did. I, I'm really fortunate because I, I really love Roger in his work so much, and it was great to be able to see the film. It's a little bit, um, it's certainly uh, very kind of reverential in certain ways towards Roger Ebert, uh, which comes with the territory really, of that kind of film, I'd imagine. True, but at the same time, it, it finds a way to really be honest about his alcohol abuse earlier in life, and, and doesn't try to paint him as a complete saint. You know, talks about his his ego and how that played into certain parts of his life. But it also really gets at, you know, sort of what made him who he was. So that one's really good. Um, I also quite enjoyed uh, To Be Decay, uh, the George Decay documentary. Hmm. Uh, I'm not kidding when I say I laughed and I cried. Uh, it's just a fantastic, fun-loving look at this uh, at this guy. And what's really neat is that it goes through his time as, in, as a child in Japanese-American internment camps. Um, and it goes through his his uh, younger life as a closeted gay man to his time when he finally was able to come out of the closet and his relationship with his husband, Brad, which is, they're just the sweetest on-screen couple. It's, it's absolutely hilarious. Um, and I was also excited to see that it really doesn't shy away from the feud with Shatner, uh, which is played to pretty terrific effect. Um, so that one's really good. As far as other films that were particularly noteworthy, um, there's a film called E-Team, which is really good that is about the Human Rights Watch and the teams that they send in to areas uh, like Libya and Syria to document potential human rights abuses. That's a documentary, a uh, fantastic film. Uh, I also really liked a film called The Internet's Own Boy, which was directed by Brian Nappenberger, who did uh, a film I loved at Slamdance a few years ago called We Are Legion, The Story of the Hacktivists. Hmm. Um, the Internet's Own Boy is about uh, a young man that played a huge part in the development of RSS 
uh, amongst other things, and the trial um, that eventually killed him uh, and whatnot. And it's that's a fantastic look at a really interesting, you know, child prodigy and sort of where that led with relation to these differing definitions of what is copyrighted and what should be free for everybody to benefit from. Um, I also quite liked a movie called uh, a movie called A Most Wanted Man, which is a Jean Le Carre story starring Philip Seymour Hoffman, Rachel McAdams, Lauren Bacall. Wow. I heard about this one, yeah. Directed by Anton Corbin. Um, really liked it. I don't think you know it's not really the equal of something like The Constant Gardener, which I think is is perhaps the best adaptation that I've seen of a Jean Le Carre story. Um, I love The Constant Gardener. That is that film. I just I absolutely love that movie. <laughs> If Fernando Mireles, I mean, between that and City of God, I mean, at that point in his career, his work as a director, you just couldn't really stop it's him. It's why I was so disappointed in Blindness, because of, like, coming up City of God and Constantly Garden, I'm like, this man can do no wrong! And then, <laughs> yeah, that happened. Oh, oh wait just a moment. <laughs> um, but no, Most Wanted Man's good. It's a quiet thriller. If you're looking for a traditional, at least in the current sense of the word, a thriller, you're going to be disappointed, but it's, it's, uh, it's very good. Um... And then another one that was really good was The Overnighters, which is a documentary about a uh, pastor in uh, North Dakota, I believe it's North Dakota, who allows uh, drifters and whatnot to sleep on the floor of the church. It's this really interesting look and a really interesting guy and his commitment to love his neighbor as himself and kind of where that gets him. Um, Well, those were some of my real favorites. Uh, I don't know... I don't know if you want to get into anything that wasn't particularly good, or if you want to just major on on the good ones. That's up to you. Uh, I mean, we thought it's, this is going to be a long show as it is, so I want to kind of just stick with the positive, I guess, for now. You got it. Um, I have one question, just because Abe will want to know the answer to this. Um, did you see The Raid 2? Because I know that was a big popular one. I really wanted to see The Raid 2, uh, but could not work it into the schedule. Yeah, I understand that. It's a you know busy time, and bit, especially for a screening like that, that's going to be likely packed with everybody anyway. Uh, and I know there was, did, did, did this, was the secret screening of, I believe it was Nymphomaniac from Lars Ventura, was that even an option for you? Did you even try? You know what? I didn't even know it was happening until I was in line for another movie. I think I was seeing The Voices uh, at that time. Mm-hmm. And then there was a, a gentleman behind me, because Sundance splits up the public screenings from the press and industry screenings to allow them to kind of pack the times a little bit closer to press and industry so that we can kind of crank through them. Um, and there was a gentleman in line who was getting text updates from a friend of his in the secret screening line who was saying, yeah, we just found this nymphomaniac. Um, and I have a friend uh, who ironically... Uh, Doug uh, might be part of an Academy Award-winning documentary in a few in a few weeks. He was the editor for Twenty Feet from Stardom, um, uh, but Doug saw *Nymphomaniac* uh, and absolutely loved it. And, and he, you know, I certainly trust his opinion, so I'm really excited to see it myself. And this is just part one. Yeah, I'm <laughs> I, I'm quite excited as well. I I don't even want to describe what that film's about. I just want to leave it. At, it's well, it's interesting to too when you look at. We were just talking about *Blue is the Warmest Color*. Yeah, it's so interesting to see that Lars von Trier see the way that he might deal with sex as opposed to the way that that film dealt with it. It'll just be fascinating just to kind of see where he takes it. For sure. And given that we're both, uh, we were both big fans of Melancholy, I believe that was on both of our top ten lists of that year. Really like Melancholy. Yeah. I mean, anytime Von yeah. Trier does anything, I'm, I want to see it. Yeah. <laughs> it depends on how 
sad I want to feel in some cases, or how, but uh, yeah, I, I'm certainly intrigued by a new Bondry or work, and I certainly look into it when it comes out. But, uh, uh, and also, too, I'll have to send you the picture to put in the show notes, but I also was, was really excited to have the chance to meet, I met George Takei. Oh, cool. Yeah, I, I think I did see that picture actually. Yeah, yeah. Which was which was great because um, at Sundance headquarters, I was with a colleague of mine. Uh, because what happens is there are certain screenings early in the morning uh, at one of the larger venues. Um, these 9 a.m. screenings that are combined press and industry and public, mm-hmm. and so you can go to the industry office with your badge and pick up a ticket. So I was with a colleague of mine. She was picking up some tickets. You know, I was just sort of sitting in a chair trying to relax a little bit while she was doing everything. So we get up, we go downstairs, uh, and if we had gone out the front door, we would have missed him. But we were going out the side door, and there's a little coffee shop. And George Decay walks out of the coffee shop. Well, being a huge Trekkie, I immediately kind of freak out, but decide that I have to take this opportunity. And I just said to him, you know, I'm really excited about your movie. I just, I can't wait to see it. And he said, well, thank you. And then it was, that was just... You know, made my day, and my friend and I were able to ask him for pictures, get some pictures quickly, and kind of get out of his way. Um, but it was just an absolute thrill to to meet him, uh, just being a, a huge Trekkie and whatnot. Um, but that, as far as celebs go, that was kind of the, the big highlight for me. Yeah, well, a good George Takei story is... Takei story, sorry. It's certainly a nice way to end this segment. So uh, I'm gonna leave, we'll leave it there, but thank you, Adam, for talking about your experience at Sundance. It's always a pleasure to hear what your stories. Thanks so much for having me. It's a great experience and, and, and hopefully one that uh, we'll be able to share at some point. I, uh, eventually I'll, be, I'll make it up there. I hate snow, but I'll, I might do it for the good of the cause. <laughs> <laughs> but um, for now, where can people find more of your work? Uh, you can find more of my work at twitter.com slash iltwinanarchist or at things I know about the movie located at everythingyoualwayswantedtoknow.blogspot.com. Awesome. Great. And uh, thanks again, Adam, for that, as well as joining with Mark and I to talk about Blue is the Warmest Color. And now we will jump back to the main recording with a myself and Mark once again. And there we are. That was a great recap on Sundance as well as Blue is the Warmest Color. Thanks, guys, for those two wonderful early-on segments. Now, here's the rest of the show. Yeah, so we're now going to get into the bulk of things here, um, where Abe, Mark, and I are going to talk about the some of the other big foreign films that came out in, the, um, in this past year, in 2013. And um, let's start with the one that all three of us have seen. Let's talk about The Hunt. Uh, the Hunt is a film starring Mads Mikkelsen as a teacher who... He's basically living his everyday life. He's having some issues with his own, having custody of his own son, given his relationship with his uh, his ex-wife. But things get incredibly more complicated when a lie emerges that proves to ostracize him from basically the entire community and simultaneously ruin his reputation as just a teacher and a person in general. Um, that's tiptoeing as much as I can, although I think we'll get more into it, which I don't really mind at this point. It's It's not... Worth saving. I mean, if you're going to go see The Hunt, which I recommend you do, go see it. Um, with that said, I know, Abe, you've seen it the most recent. So what did you think of The Hunt? I certainly thought that the acting was very good. I thought that the storyline was uh, something that you have seen in film, but you haven't really seen it as often because the, the subject matter is very, yes, uh, sensitive material. Um, it involves basically, uh, I guess, accusations of child molestation. Um and one thing that I was texting you about, Aaron, when I was <laughs> during the film, 
was how much I basically just didn't like the way that it was set up so that the, the questioning from a, a school psychologist basically put uh, our character, Lucas, in such a negative and poor light, and then how it's perpetrated by the school headmaster, Gerth or Grithy or whatever her name is. So those two characters I hated the most. I, I also didn't like that uh, it sort of goes to which, uh, unfortunately, this child is like, five but it's like a woman scorn is i can't remember the rest of that phrase so smooth yeah for the most part i think the acting was very solid um i felt especially terrible for the like it's the repercussions of the actions and the and the gossip so to speak uh, especially when it, inv- it involves his son uh, who comes to stay with him from time to time uh, i'm glad to say that there were two sides to it in terms of well we, he has some friends i still believe him and some friends who who possibly don't believe him. Um, it sort of becomes an, a little bit resolved toward the end there, and there's not so much legal drama. It's really just what happens about. Uh, it's really so much about more about how a character goes through this and how the the trials and tribulations that this person goes through. So again, sorry acting, but I just didn't like the the entire premise and the way that it was framed. So that you it could it got out of hand incredibly. It got escalated incredibly quickly, and I just didn't like that about it. Mark. Well, one of the things that you mentioned, uh, Aaron, was that uh, we're dealing with a lie here. And I think it's it's fair to say that we know from the start that he is innocent. So we sort of share his uh, kind of frustration with the way that this thing uh, unfolds. And that's good because it kind of allows you to sort of experience this film kind of in the same way that he would experience it. And... Um, you know, it's, it's a lot like, um, I kind of mentioned in my review that it reminded me a little bit of like Arthur Miller's play, The Crucible, yeah. and the, the idea mm-hmm. of like the Salem witch trials. And you, you kind of like are basically treating this guy guilty until proven innocent. And this, the way this unfolds could have happened anywhere. I could easily see this happening in the U.S. This, this, the kind of, this is the kind of allegation that is so pernicious that people almost have a tendency to just sort of like accept it because it's almost like, well, we we want to we want to err on the side of the child, you know, and and you know forget the adult. So it's it's a very like frustrating. I mean, it's it's very good, and I highly recommend it. But it's a very frustrating experience to watch it because you you sort of like feel like things are spiraling spiraling out of control. And the um, uh, Abe, you mentioned that teacher. She leads that invest. She she does this questioning of the of the young student. It is absolutely the exactly textbook example of how not to lead an interrogation. I mean, she basically leads questions, puts right. words. I mean, it's almost shockingly so badly led that, I mean, she she should not be a teacher but or, or, or leading this investigation at the very least. So, yeah, I mean, I thought it was a very good – it's a good movie because it kind of – it gives you sort of an idea of how things can spiral out of control. And it seems very real. I, I think this is – it, it's it, it doesn't seem like it's been um, exaggerated in any way. I think it's it's a way that this kind of a story could play out. That's exactly my thought on it. That's why I think it's so effective because I entirely believe the scenario that happens despite how frustrated I was watching various events play out. And you mentioned that, and I was like, I haven't seen this movie since when I last since since April when I last saw it. But oh my god, that describing that teacher and her line of questioning brought back many feelings that were flooding in my mind as I'm watching as I was watching the film because it's so infuriating to listen to 
things progress in the way that they do, which are entirely unfair and have so much little context added to them to make it just sound even worse than it does. And it's just, it just, it's the kind of thing where it's, it, it's easy for me to get on the side of somebody permanently, even knowing that he's already innocent, when you have just incompetence being displayed on the other side. And so I was all for seeing where this would go just because I needed like something to quiet my, my, my anger towards the situation happening. And with that said, I'm so happy that Mads Mikkelsen is just terrific in this film and is able to make it all work. Yes. And especially because I know, I mainly know Mads Mikkelsen, and I've mentioned this before, and you've told me that he's, you know, a good person in what a, a royal affair as well, but I mainly know him as a villainous type character. That's generally what I see him as. And so seeing him take on, you know, this kind of persona as innocent teacher guy who has an amount of charm to him and is, you know, a good father and like has these qualities that make him a guy that you want to root for. It's just really, I was just really happy to see Mickelson in this kind of role and see how that played out. Um, with that said, the, the, the film as a whole, yes, it's certainly challenging and frustrating to watch because of the way it's playing out, but I, it's just, I agree that I've seen, you know, stories of this type before in certain, not necessarily this exact subject matter, but it's not necessarily refreshing, but it's something different because of what's being put on display and how it's being handled. And I just, I just really responded to the film for all the reasons I've already said. And just, it, it just worked for me enough for it to stick in my mind for throughout the rest of the year. Cause it got up to my <laughs> top 10. I mean, <laughs> and I especially like how you guys say that it was very frustrating during that line of questioning. And I just, I wanted to throw my, my hands and then I, I started thinking it'd be great if at the end he just goes, you know, he just goes bananas and he just kills everybody. Because they were all wrong, but I was like, no, that's not the right <laughs> ending for this movie, Abe. Let's calm Picks down. Up a machine gun. Yeah, he's just like, I didn't do anything! And just beats everybody to, to a bloody pulp. But again, I, I felt really bad because um, the the girl in question, the, the school toddler in question, Clara. she actually, Clara, yeah, Clara with the K, she actually says to her mom, like, oh, you know what, I just said something stupid, it's my bad. And her mom's like, no, no, nice. well, your teacher told me that if you have nightmares and that if you wet your bed then it probably happened, and it's okay. Your brain just doesn't act or understand it right now. And, it, it, you know, it, it, she does it again at, toward the end of the film, and that's when you sort of reach some type of resolution, especially when her father listens to it after this uh, this uh, sort of like Christmas Day church, you know, I don't know what you would call mass it. mass is the word. Mass, but, I mean, what would you call the action that he does? I mean, it's, it's sort of like a, a pent-up frustration. They find just lets it out on his on his very, very good friend, and... That's where you start start to see some sort of resolution. But again, yeah, that it just it's it starts like a wildfire, and I hated that fact about it. She basically turns the entire school against Lucas, and the only person that sort of sticks up for him is this cleaning lady from another country who he's uh, seeing on the side, and just it was terrible. Oh, also, if you're a big fan of cargo pants, you'll love this movie. <laughs> I didn't even notice that. They're all wearing cargo pants. The men are wearing cargo pants like crazy. That's how you do it in in Denmark. Are they Denmark? In Denmark? Denmark? Yeah. All right, then let's move on. Let's um get to another film because we got a few to talk about here. Um, let's talk about Drug War. You know, Abe and I we've seen Drug War at this point, which is available currently on Netflix as well as on Instant Watch. 
And uh, Drug War is a film from director Johnny Toe. He's a Hong Kong director. He's known for kind of making crime action genre films. Um, quite regard, quite well regarded for that. I mean, as far as that genre goes and people, I mean, John Woo is obviously like an example to call to when it comes yeah. to Hong Kong action directors, but Johnny Toe's, Johnny Toe's certainly taken up kind of the mantle in it as John Woo's going more towards epic fare, let alone to America. Um, but this film concerns a, uh, kind of a, a drug, it's, it's set in Hong Kong. Is it set in Hong Kong or China? It's Hong Kong. It is Hong Kong. Or right? actually they're in China. They're yeah. in, are they in China? Yeah. yeah, they're in China. I couldn't yeah, figure it out yet. Yeah, I was trying to look it up. Um, but yeah. Set in China, it involves a, um, a drug, a drug cartel boss who, basically he's, he's arrested, he's brought in. Because of his actions, he is likely gonna face the death penalty, so he makes a deal. He decides that he's gonna work with the cops in order to take down the other drug bosses that are involved in the whole meth operation in exchange for having, I'd assume, a reduced sentence, let alone just not death. And so he basically partners up with the captain of the, of the, uh, police force, and, Sets about giving as much information as he is willing to in order to make a kind of an operation go down where they can capture the main drug boss and things basically escalate from there. Um, Abe, what did you think of Drug War? Not a huge fan, and primarily because I thought that the story went really nowhere. Um, there were two main characters, or not even two main characters, there are two characters that I like the most, and their time to shine comes much later in the film. Those are the two mute brothers. And they have this intense, awesome shootout. But other than that, I didn't really like the movie because you, you, it's long enough so that you get a sense of who the characters are um, and you get a sense of sort of their moral attitudes. But it's trying to do things that I think that a, a younger John Woo would have done in a much cooler and grittier way. Um, I didn't really get, get a sense of uh, how in deep these people had to go or you know to what great lengths they had to go and. The ending just was ridiculous. Uh, so, yeah, I'm, I wasn't a huge fan of this movie. Okay, so everything... I know, Mark, you haven't seen it, so I'll talk. Um, everything you just said, I disagree with. That's where I'm at wow. <laughs> <laughs> Aaron, what? We hardly disagree. Um, I think the story... I, I like I, both I, sides, I, though. I, That's good. I, I, I really like the efficiency of the story. I liked how the plot played out. I really enjoyed kind of the grit handled in here. I, I loved how it works on this kind of procedural level and it's very straightforward. It doesn't take any time to, to stray away from the main story at hand. Add to that, I really enjoyed the main two characters of the police captain and the, the captured drug cartel guy who's working, who's working with them. Um, I liked these various characters that turned in. I liked the, the stakes that got raised as the captain had to kind of do his own infiltrating to make this whole plan work out. And honestly, would I was I was gonna be pleased seeing how this movie would turn out if it didn't have like action scenes in it. I was just I was really I would have been interested to see that. I was very much enthralled by just the conversations they were having and how intense things could get and where it could have gone if there was a slip up. And then it just happened to also have a climactic action finale, which I thought was really well filmed, really engaging, really really well done at being. Not a cool gunfight as John Woo would do, but more of a, a very gritty and grounded gunfight that would likely happen the way it kind of played well, out. Well, I mean, honestly, I, I, the guy opens up the trunk and just starts driving toward this guy just to shoot from the trunk. I don't know if that's going to be exactly what the guy would do in a regular setting, but. It's that or slow motion with doves <laughs> flying around him. Yeah, I definitely would prefer the doves. And I'm not saying that it had to be filmed in a, you know, in a 
very actiony sort of slow motion kind of way, much like any of John Woo's old eighties, nineties movies are. Um, I just never get a, I didn't get a sense of any of the stakes involved at all. Um, you know, you realize that there's a, a character named Uncle Bill. Without and what without he's spoiling about. anything, I would I say I did get a, a sense of what the stakes were. They wanted to they wanted to attack. They wanted to go for a certain goal, which was arresting this Uncle Bill character, and then things right. got more complicated as they learned more about how this whole drug operation worked, and they realized what they could accomplish if they set certain things into motion. And I was really engaged by all of that. They certainly set the things in motion, and I think that there was a pretty cool port scene where you start seeing where the how the cartel sort of works out. Um, but the ending sort of ruined it for me, which was just one of the characters, um, and I actually liked that character a lot. He was the main bad guy. His name is like Timmy Choi in the movie, um, and he's he was very good in the movie. But just the way that he goes on and on about how he knows all these connections and how you should bust everybody else. For what purpose? You know, you, some of the folks are already. Like, I felt really bad for the female lieutenant in the in the in the crime thing. There's a lot of things I felt in, bad the for, but that's drug game. I, and I, just, it was I terrible because she out. just gets she just gets super destroyed. I didn't think it was very well done. I mean, it's hard to really attack that besides just re-explaining the points I already did. <laughs> like, I, just, <laughs> I don't know. We'd have to have a, a third person watch the the film too. <laughs> Oh gosh, if that's not an invitation to Bark. me, I don't know what is. <laughs> but it is on Netflix Instant Watch, so it's it's going to be very easy to to check out. Yeah, I could say that I didn't uh, know what I was getting into. I I I knew it was a crime film, and I knew it was from Johnny Toe. I've seen a couple of Johnny Toe's past films, which are. Have you seen any other Johnny Toe films, by the way? I haven't. No. Yeah. I, I have not either. <laughs> are they similar? They, I mean, they have similar subject matter because they're just they're basically crime thrillers. And yeah. um, I can't. I haven't seen all of Toe's films, so I can't say this is the best of them. But I can certainly see why this is a film that stuck out for a lot of people, just because it, it works for me. Like it, Rare. It, yeah. and a lot of people. I mean, it's, it's a, <laughs> I saw it because of how much high regard it was I, getting. Yeah, I read. I read the praise, and I saw it like, oh, the the must film, must see 2013 foreign films of the year. It's like number two on some lists, and I was thinking maybe. It worked for some of those folks, but it really didn't work for me. And that's not to say that I'm biased against Hong Kong action movies or whatever else. It's just I've seen some pretty good Hong Kong action movies, and this really wasn't one of them. It just didn't really do anything for me, primarily because like it has action in it. But I thought it was more of a crime drama. It just have, it's like, oh, there's also action in this movie. Awesome, great. Yeah. I mean that that didn't really work for me either. I mean there were elements to it that did work, such as Uncle Bill's character and uh, the syndicate and whatever else, but. I love this police captain. I love seeing how morally clear the, the police, police captain is. is a strange guy. <laughs> yeah, I mean, let's get let's get it right. He uh, he busted you. He didn't betray you. All right, decidedly. We'd love to hear your thoughts, fans. <laughs> yeah, we'd love to hear your thoughts. I'd like to see you know, what the what the bag has. Yeah, tell him why he's wrong. There you go. <laughs> <laughs> or why he's right. Let's get to um, let's get to our next one. Um, Let's go over The Great Beauty. Uh, this film is currently up for Best Foreign Film, well, along with The Hunt and um, a few other films. Actually, we're not talking about the other films that are up for Best Foreign Film right now. <laughs> uh, uh, it's hard to go into what the plot of this film is because it is fairly formless, but it involves a man named uh, Jeff Gambaradella, who is Italian, living in Rome, 
who found success when he was younger and is basically living has lived the rest of his life in a state of luxury and he writes some columns and whatnot but he mainly just throws parties and lounges around Rome um and the film revolves around him kind of reflecting on his life and what have you um with that said Mark what are your thoughts on the great beauty um well you kind of described the the plot there really isn't a whole lot it's more just kind of a mood and from that perspective i mean it is a very beautiful looking film and i think you know it's filmed in rome and you it's set against the backdrop of the cathedrals and the museums and and it's almost physically impossible to film a movie there without it being beautiful so I, I think the cinematography is very nice, and it, it does create this mood. And there are definitely some party scenes that are really captivating, and kind of it, it opens with this big party scene. And and I right from the start, I was kind of like excited about it and feeling like, gosh, I wish I was at that party, or you know. And it's the the party revelers are like all different ages. I mean, they have yeah. people there that look like they're in their 80s and stuff, and they're doing these like line dances, and it, it looks like a lot of fun and. And so, I mean, it, it does create this mood, and, and I can I can understand it. It's gotten quite a bit of acclaim. Um, I would have to say, though, my, my enjoyment of it was just about on a superficial sort of pretty level. He does talk a lot, and he has these different things to say, and a lot of what he says I th- think was just kind of boring. And then every once in a while he will say something that is kind of um, – uh, he, he has, does these little wisecracks, and he has these like little cynical, cynical takes on – on different things and he kind of dresses down this one woman who who's kind of full of herself and i liked that but I mean, there just really to me wasn't enough to this film to really grab onto so i i, I liked it fine but it, it wasn't it didn't really like captivate me in the way that it has captivated a, a large portion of the critical you know masses okay so mark everything you just said <laughs> i agree with I needed a pause for that dramatic effect, uh, which was more drama than there is in the movie. Um, I, what I was, what I admired about the great beauty, a movie I do like, and I would recommend to a certain crowd. Uh, I just have the same kind of regard that you just gave it, Mark. Uh, what I like about it is that while I was watching this movie, I thought this is like the best sensory experience I've had since maybe spring breakers in terms of like a visual, a visual and like audio experience in a theater. I was just really, like, arrested by the party atmosphere, the great display of imagery in Rome, and the right. music, the soundtrack, the the colors and everything. It was just a very, it's a very Italian film, that's for right. sure. And for that, for those reasons, I certainly admire the filmmaking on display, and I can, I guess I can see where the acclaim comes from, but yeah, I agree with you, it just doesn't have... A lot going for for being like you know a two hour and twenty something minute movie like it's it, long it has very little going on in terms of drama or you know anything that is supposed to compel me beyond just saying hey that guy's pretty cool he's old and he's just doing what he wants like there's there's nothing else there to it and that's I I mean I I guess other people certainly respond at a greater effect to that but for me just I mean yeah I I'm not. There's not much else for me to like really say. I get the feeling that there are a lot of listeners right now screaming at the podcast because I know this film has like a lot of, you know, fans. I mean, at least critically, but I, I, I just couldn't, yeah, get captivated by it in the way that, I mean, other than superficially. I, I like how, I mean, this movie has like little going on and then we both, we both 
weren't huge fans of Holy Motors last year, which has, like, too much going on. So, like, <laughs> the art house community really has it out for Mark Hoban and Aaron Newworth right now. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And uh, that what Holy you guys Mo- want, man? Holy Motors is kind of a good uh, callback, too, Yeah, I think. Yeah. I'm very curious when, because I know Adam uh, has not seen this film yet, and I'm, I, I very much think that he will appreciate this movie, and I'm curious to hear his thoughts on it once he finally does see The Great Beauty. I will say I liked – I would say if I had to rank those two, I liked this more. I, I thought there was a little bit more. And I did kind of like the character. I just wish he had more interesting things to say. Every once in a while, he will – he will he he said something, and I thought, oh, okay, that was kind of clever. But then then he would just – he was very self-involved, you know, and I was kind of like, all right. He, 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 he kind of uh, – I don't know. You described the, the party scenes – uh, oh, which are basically like action scenes. Like if this was like an action movie, those would be like the action scenes of the movie. And they're like step up 3D, huh? They're pretty fantastic. The party scenes. They're they're almost as this wild and lush as Great Gatsby's parties. <laughs> like they're right. And it's it's all ages. It's kind of yeah. like I like this sort of free for all. Like oh, everyone's welcome, and they're, and they're all at this party, and it doesn't matter if you're 80 or or 20. You know, you're you're invited, and and we're all enjoying it and it, and i kind of liked i wanted to go to the party yeah just didn't i just didn't really enjoy uh, the 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 whole 142 minutes of it <laughs> where i'm going with that is i again didn't know what i was getting into with this film night and i was thinking is are we just going to be at this party the whole time which would be awesome yes. uh, are we just going to like move around between the different characters of this party which would be awesome and we, we didn't do that like we just like oh no that was, that was the end of that party we're now we're moving on to this guy and going through his life but i mean i exactly what you said there's all these different ranges of people at these parties there's a, like another party that goes on that has this little girl doing like some performance art performance art which was i, I, I these are just scenes that i i really enjoyed watching just because it's not a matter of not having seen it before, but just I liked what was put before my eyes on display. It was just this, this, this just amount of colors and, and music and everything that just really worked for me on on a sensory level. But yeah, as a whole, it's just this is a a long film about this just this guy doing nothing around Rome. So it's just hard for me to. Embrace. There's no there's no conflict in yeah. this film. I mean, his his conflict is he's in this melancholy state of his life. But he really doesn't have anything to complain about. He's very wealthy. He has friends. He lives in a beautiful apartment atop, you know, overlooking the Colosseum. And then, you know, when he's whining about his life, it's kind of like, what are you, you know, complaining about? He don't, he has no conflict in his life. But yet, and conflict is kind of what makes a movie, and there is none of that. So it's hard to get in, it's hard to get excited about a film that has absolutely no conflict. He did a movie with Sean Penn. Yes, and that's a film I have seen. That's called This Must Be the Place. Right, uh, I, and I have not seen that, but... I've seen but, that uh, film, and that film, I mean, all his other films are Italian. That, that film, This Must Be the Place, starring Sean Penn, that was his kind of, his English language feature debut. And I liked that film more just because it had a very specific plot in mind of what was going on. Um, and it's a very, it's certainly, you can certainly see the styles of both. You can see what 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 Sorrentino's doing as a director, you can see his style on display in both films. But I I hate to make it sound you know snobbish or whatnot or like limiting, but I liked seeing a movie of his that had more direction in where it was going. And it's, but I still like The Great Beauty as a, for the reasons I've described, but just not as a movie where I'm like, oh man, you got this is this is the one. Like that's just not where I was at thinking of The Great Beauty. All right, that's The Great Beauty. Um, let's move on now. Let's get into the past. This is the new film from 
director Oscar Fahadi, who previously directed the Academy Award-winning A Separation from a couple years ago. And, um, I believe, yeah, Mark, you saw that film as well, right? Correct? Oh, yeah. Yeah, we've, we, I think yeah. we were talking about it after the fact, because we, we were big fans of that film. I know Adam had, to, I saw it with Adam, so I know we were big fans of A Separation. Basically, it's, it surrounds a, a family, a family that's been broken up. An Iranian man who was previously married to Berenice Bejo's character, he returns, he, he left for Iran, he comes back to France to kind of formally divorce his, his ex-wife, his wife, so she can, she can move on from there, cause she's, has, she has a new relationship with another man, and he has, he has a son of his own. Berenice Bejo's character, she has two daughters, and, uh, sorry, Ahmad, the Iranian man, he, he's basically just trying to, he's trying to cut ties because Berenice Bejo is requiring him to, Get, get rid of the divorce. There's a lot of drama that ensues just based on these different characters coming in contact with each other once again and bringing up things from the past. Uh, Mark, what did you think of, of, of the past? Well, uh, the past made my top 10 of 2013, so obviously it's a film I liked quite a bit. And uh, what I really appreciate about this director um, is he really has a good feel for human relationships and drama, and being able to extract a lot of uh, emotion out of a fairly simple uh, setup and just allowing the drama of human life to unfold um, as you watch. So I really enjoyed it, and as the different uh, layers kind of become revealed to these relationships, you, you start learning more and more, and the more I learned the more I was captivated by the story. And it, it's essentially about three people, although there are a few others that, that play into their relationships. But, um, yeah, I, I really enjoyed it a lot. And I do kind of like the, the simplicity of it. It's such a throwback to just a, a, a like, oh, I don't know, old, I feel like older films of like the 40s and the 50s were more about just dialogue and, and drama. And that's not maybe always, there's definitely cases of that today too, but this is definitely a, a very, um, sort of a, a classic kind of film to me. And, uh, yeah, I, I really enjoyed it quite a bit. I know we've, we previously talked about this together on the top 10 episode just because we were the only ones that had seen it at the time. So I'm, I'm gonna, it's hard to not just repeat the same feelings because I agree with you again. Um, but I did finally kind of delve in, I, t- I finally wrote my review of the film this weekend. And so I, you know, I was able to kind of bring back thoughts that I had on it at the time I saw it, which was, you know, more than a month ago at this point. And things that I, a thing that I really enjoy about the past, which I haven't discussed yet, I don't think, is how it, it has, you know, it has three lead characters and it, it, ba- it kind of subtly shifts which character you're following most closely throughout the film. I'd, I'd say it starts with Ahmad's character and then the middle portion is more focused on Veronese Bejo. And then it find, then it concentrates on um on Tahar Tahar Rahim's character, um and I like that it's very it, it's it's an interesting way to make a film kind of because it doesn't have villains per se or have you know pe- people that you absolutely need to see succeed and see and get ahead of others it it's an interesting way to kind of frame a story where you have these three characters and you're following them and you slowly get more information based on how the film has decided to reveal bits and pieces about these other characters and you come to, you know, come closer and closer to each one because the film's sort of divided that way despite them all still interacting with each other throughout. Everyone's point of view is represented and it's it's not about villains or or 
good guys, it's just people, which is basically how light, a lot of life is like. So I, I appreciate that. And the other thing too is he, he doesn't, when I was talking earlier about how it's sort of a, uh, it's very simple. I mean, I don't, I don't remember the score, but it, it doesn't seem like there's really music or the, there's, there's none. No, there is, there's, okay. there's, there's no score. Right, so there's no score. And then there's not, there's not, the, there's nothing to do with costumes. I mean, they're just wearing very simple clothes. There's no special effects. He doesn't even use things like flashbacks or nonlinear storytelling, which is a very common device in movies today. And I just sort of, sometimes it's refreshing to see a film that actually just tells a story from beginning to end and, you know, in the, in the most simple way possible. Although I, I will say it's not simple because as, the, the depth of human emotion is very complex. So it's sort of deceptively simple. But I don't know, I, I like that about this film quite a bit. I said there's no score. I mean, there's a very, there's some subtle moments of music being picked up, but it's certainly, it's, it's not done in any way that's overwrought or right, anything right. that's even very apparent. It's just kind of like, here's a tone. <laughs> like, right. But um, no, I agree with you. And yeah, I, it is the kind of film where you could, in not necessarily a lesser film, but in a different film, you could expect to see a flashback scene that would show like when Ahmad and and um, Marie were were married and how the relationship was, and then cut back to now and how things are different. Like you could easily see that happening. But this one, yeah, you're right. It it's it just tells a completely linear story, and it's for being again a film that's you know it's what this one's a little over two hours, and I'm just enthralled the whole way through, and it's very impressive for a film that's about you know, just familial drama. It's it's impressive to have a film like that that can just absorb me as much as this one did. And especially for being, not especially, but I mean, it is a foreign film. It is a film that, you know, I'm, I'm reading the subtitles of, not that I care, really, but I mean, it's, it, it is, you know, not packed with like actors you know and love or broad characters or wacky humorous moments to go along with the drama. It doesn't have any of that. It's very straightforward and simple. And it's something that I really admire. And I really want to check out the past films of Asghar Farhadi just because I'm curious if he's always been this good because of separation <laughs> in the past are damn good movies. I mean, and this movie has gotten acclaim, but I think maybe because the separation got so much acclaim, like the past was not nominated for best foreign film and it easily could have been. It's definitely good enough. So I have to wonder why. And I guess, I mean, maybe people thought, well, you know, separation won and now it's, Maybe we need to focus on another. I, I don't know. I don't know what. I, I'm, I don't, I'm curious too. I, I don't, don't really have that. a reason. I don't like trying to assign reasons because I know people. Don't I don't either. But it's like, up. yeah, but it's like, I mean, Michael Haneke seems to get nominated every time he makes a movie. Like he has plenty of regard. <laughs> like right, I, right. I'm not sure what I, if it had to do with you know the qualifying runs or how many people were able to see it in time or whatnot. But I just, yeah, it is. It was surprising that it's like, oh, the past didn't well, make it in. All right. Well, one thing, um, Berenice Bejo did win Best Actress at the. Con Film Festival, right? so yeah. that's something right there. I mean, but yeah, that's how it is. But that doesn't take away how good the past is. Right. <laughs> like it's still a fantastic film that's worth seeking out. Um, I mean, obviously, is that, it's, is that uh, still playing in theaters, by the way, or is it's, that it's recently spread to more theaters. I mean, as far as a movie like The Past will go, it's right. It's recently spread to more theaters that are, you know, obviously more of the the art house theaters. But right. I don't know how much more of an expansion it can get, or if it's going to lose theaters. But it's you know certainly one that's playing in select theaters and will eventually arrive on a DVD, Blu-ray, and what have you. But yeah, certainly worth seeking out, that's for sure. So the next film, and presumably the last film, because I don't have anything else on the docket unless Mark has a surprise movie for me uh, we're going to talk about, is... Um, I think it's I forget. Uh, I did see it. Um, 
we have The Wind Rises. This is the newest and perhaps the last film from director Hayao Miyazaki. Um, it is basically an animated biography, um, although his the personal life aspect is very much fictionalized. But it's a look at um, Jiro Horikoshi, a man who uh, was responsible for designing the Japanese fighter planes during or some of the specific designs for Japanese fighter planes during World War II, and just how basically how he came up, how he and how he kind of managed his life along with being an engineer during this time. Um, see, I know Mark, you've talked about this previous, so I'm gonna I'm gonna go first on this one, uh, just because I, I saw it more recently, and I, and I you know you've been going first all night, so there you go. <laughs> um, I. Um, <laughs> As far as Miyazaki films go, I I haven't been like a lifelong fan of Miyazaki. I've only probably within the last ten years is when I started catching up on a lot of his films. Um, with some that I haven't, I still haven't seen yet. That sound really interesting to me. Like, uh, was it Porco Riso? Is that one? Uh, doesn't ring a bell. It's the one where like it's about a it's about like a, an ex fighter pilot who becomes like a bounty hunter. That sounds that sounds, sounds like awesome, some, right? Something like yeah, something like Cowboy Bebop or something. Porco Rosso. That, that is what it's called. At least that's the American title of it. Regardless, uh, but I have I have seen films like Spirited Away, Princess Mononoke, and what have you. Spirited Away is my favorite of the Miyazaki bunch. Um, but with that said, I'm certainly you know accustomed to Miyazaki style at this point. And what I liked about The Wind Rises, or at least found interesting about it, is that it's fairly different from his other movies it's a film that doesn't rely really? or, yeah it does i mean it's certainly obviously the animation style is there and you can see you know his you can see how his direction informs this film just as it's informed his other past work but it doesn't have it doesn't have fantastical elements in the same way his other films do um there's it's certainly there to an extent but it's mainly in the what amounts to dream sequences like it never really the film is very much based in reality and right. while it has maybe exaggerated aspects to it just because that's how the anime style sort of functions um it certainly feels like a much more grounded film like say for my saddest example i could choose grave of the fireflies i was, I was like <laughs> please don't say grave of the fireflies which i, which I watched the, which i watched the day before i saw the wind rises and is the yeah. second saddest film i've ever seen that is, that is, a, yeah, that is a difficult film but that i mean that film is completely grounded in you know the real world and the wind Se- rises. second saddest with uh elephant man beating number one you know me well enough at this point mark that is true it is the elephant <laughs> man is my, 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 <laughs> that is how good of friends winner, winner. Be- that's how good of friends we've become over the course of doing this podcast together <laughs> well, i feel this i've said this on your show before too that yeah. movie is so painful it's hard for me to just bring up in conversation that's how sad the elephant man is to me i can't like talk about it without delving into my mind's memory of what that movie did um anyway <laughs> wind rises what i'm trying to say is the wind rises is pretty much reality based um and it's a neat it's a neat thing to see in a miyazaki film especially if it's going to be you know his swan song his you know final film because it's it's a film that while there's Things that are certainly entertaining about it, 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 it has a lot of melancholy in it. And, um, just in the whole tone and the, the way things are revealed and the way the story progresses. And that comes with this man, Jiro, who is a very good engineer and just wants to just make the best plane possible. That's his goal at this point. And the film doesn't, you know, it doesn't lead into, it doesn't lead into the results of what his accomplishments get to. It, it, basically hints at those type of things but it what it does do is provide you with a man that just wants to kind of do the best he can at the thing that he really wanted to do in his life 
while also giving you a sense of the drama that went along with the rest of his life during the time. And I really, I really responded to it. I was really into it. I, I was, I really, I mean, the animation's obviously gorgeous and the score is very good because Miyazaki's good at that kind of thing. But I was, I, I really, as a, you know, as a character drama, essentially, I was really into what the story provided. And given that I, I like, I, I like it. I can say I like anime because I do like anime. It's just, I'm very, I'm very, specific about anime that i watch but with that said the wind rises falls into a category of the kind that i do enjoy and respond to very well and so with that said the wind rises i really like this film and i really think Miyazaki once again did a very good job with a with a different sort of subject matter uh mark <laughs> i mean i don't think i have a whole lot to add you, uh, yeah. <laughs> you covered it like pretty well um I, uh, I, to be honest, I always have a little bit of trouble with anime. Like Princess Mononoke, I think it was, or maybe it was Spirited Away. One of those, I couldn't even understand what was going on. It was just so confusing and so fanciful and so with creatures and so bizarre. I, I have a hard time even figuring out what am I watching? This, I had none of that. It was a very simple, straightforward story about a guy that basically he just loves to design planes. And that's kind of the, the, the way that they approach this story, not from the perspective of, like you said, what ultimately happens to those planes, but more just a guy who's driven by a dream and, and his desire, you know, uh, to, to do what he loves. And it's got a lot of poetic style and luminous injury, luminous imagery that's really beautiful. Um, and there, there's, in fact, there's a, an earthquake, uh, that's quite, interesting of sight and sound that yeah. i thought was pretty well animated and and there's like scenes of like a paper plane and it just sort of takes to the sky and you sort of watch it as it caresses the air and everything and it's it's very beautiful and i i think um all in all i think it's a really interesting uh it's probably one of, i mean i actually would place it higher than than princess mononoke and spirit away just because those were very difficult for me to understand but um that's really, I mean, it's just personal taste, really. Uh, I think overall, though, I, I think it was really well done. And I do kind of like this. I, I, what I do like about anime is it does tend to uh, not get sucked into the modern anachronisms of the day and hip language and mm -hmm. things like that. It tends to be very rooted in a specific time and place, and it does that very well. And so I appreciate that about the film. Um, so yeah, if this, if, I don't know if this will be his last film, but if it is, it's, it's a fitting, uh, coda to a, a you know, a great career. That's a good point, Mark. I, I haven't really thought of that. That anime does, or at least Miyazaki films tend to function in their own sort of place and time, um, regardless of when that place or time may be, but it doesn't allow for interference from what's going on in pop culture, um, and while that's not always a terrible thing, of course, because I mean, obviously, like we movie, like movies like Shrek or whatnot. But I mean, it this kind of style does lead to it being held within its own universe, and that is that that's that's something you, you know you just don't quite see all the time anymore when you you know coming to the like the damn nut job that apparently has Psy at the end of it. Like it's just like it's, <laughs> oh, gosh. which has almost gained back its money in uh, in production. Hey, nut job two is on the schedule, guys. <laughs> is uh, it really? Yeah, still nutty. I'm serious though. There is a nut job too. Oh, in the yeah. worst. I, mean, really, so I, I think it's. Really I think nutty. it's called still nutting. Still nutting. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry. 
Abe, just to bring you, <laughs> Abe, just to bring you into this conversation, where uh, I know you, you enjoy Miyazaki films, correct? I do. Yeah, I, I, I was first, uh, you know, introduced to My Neighbor Totoro, and then um, I remember seeing what you call it, uh, Kiki's Delivery Service, pretty soon after that. And I was thinking that guy sounds like Phil Hartman, and Phil Hartman, who does an American voiceover for the cat. Um, and I watched his. Other films too, such as, uh, you know, what you guys have mentioned, Princess Mononoke, Spirited Away, as well as his other films Howl like, Castle? uh, Howl Moving Castle, yeah, but there's like another one, Ponyo. I, I did watch Ponyo as well. So I've seen, I've seen a lot of his work and I love his work with the, the composer, Joe Hisashi, I want to say. I can't really remember off the top of my head. Oh, this has a good score. Joe Hisashi. The, yeah, Joe uh, the Wind Rises. Yes, I agree. Yeah, they, they, the score is quite generally first together. It's worth yeah, I always enjoy it. Um, so I probably can't wait to see this one either. And I know this one's a little bit more grounded in reality, uh, primarily because it's based off of a person. It's almost like a biography. Um, uh, I, I still am excited. I have I do have a question for you guys. You guys have seen some of the Miyazaki films, if not all. And you know, he does have a particular way in which he animates his characters. They sort of all look the same as if he kind of just lifts the cell and just this new film just changes the, the clothing. Do you guys often have problem with that, or is that just just goes away after you guys start watching the film? Or I can't he, say it's something that's that's affected my viewings of this film or knowing which characters which. I, I tend to see you know what who these people are, who, what what differences there are between them. I, I would say the same thing. I I feel like that's sort of almost part of anime and something I just sort of accept when I'm watching an anime film. So that doesn't seem to I don't really. That doesn't bother I, me. I think there's enough personality imbued in the different characters that makes me understand which ones which without concerning myself over the animation of said characters. But that said, there are one. I mean, it's anime. There's generally characters that are very much shorter than the average person would be, or really tall, or. Have, <laughs> I mean, you can even say the same. Or... You can even say the same thing with Disney films. Uh, it, it tends to change with eras. But if you compare certain Disney films from certain eras, you'll see like the characters will look very similar. I confuse the like the the evil witch villains in a lot of the Disney films all the time. <laughs> I mean, it, oh, it's yeah, a fact. Yeah. It's a fact that that bear in Robin Hood, the Disney film, was the same bear in Jungle Book. Jungle yeah, Book they just they just took or, the bear or, and just reanimated it. See, Jungle Book and and uh, Robin Hood always felt like a. It felt like. Um, Almost like an Apatow thing, where it's like, hey, we got all the same guys, we just put them over in this movie now. Like, right. it's just like, it's like the same group of guys got together. Like, that's the kind of impression I got well, from that kind of... It's a show called Tailspin. It's, yeah, Tailspin. I mean, that's kind of, and that's like that kind of mid-60s to mid-70s period of Disney where they had that kind of going on. Where it was... Right. That was right after Disney had passed, and so they were kind of like on their own. Mm -hmm. You know, I'm thinking about Ponyo again. A movie I do like. I guess I, I'm a big fan of anime because if I can like Ponyo as much as I did, I think I can like most anime films at this point. Oh, I have a question for you guys. Did you do you guys generally like voiceover? Or do you guys like the subtitles? I certainly. I mean, I wanted to see the. I saw The Wind Rises at a. At, it was at a. It was not a not like a press screening, but it was at a. It was at a. An early an early screening just because like they had one in L.A. and I went for it and I wanted to do that specifically because it was still the original Japanese language and not the dub version. I wouldn't okay. say that I desire to seek that out all the time, but I am a fan of seeing the originally in the original intended movie as opposed to the dub version. But that said, right. I know Disney does a girl, John, John Lasseter, I guess, because he's a huge fan. He's the, he's 
the reason that Miyazaki's Studio Ghibli in general is be able to make it to America for the most part. Like he's a he does it he and Disney and everyone involved they do a good job with, with the Gib the Studio Ghibli dubs. I'm aware of that. Yeah, I would say I, I probably would. It depends on who they get to do the voices. I I would probably mo- most often prefer the original Japanese dub because that kind of allows you to kind of get lost in the world and not be thinking, oh, that's, you know, Miley exactly, Cyrus yeah. doing that voice or something. Right. That's a good point, yes. You don't think about that aspect. Uh, with that said, I mean, the I'm looking at the dub cast right now. you got Joseph Gordon-Levitt as the lead role, Emily Blunt as the lead female, then you have Jennifer Grey from Paris, Paris Viewers Day Off, Jennifer Grey, <laughs> and uh, Mae Whitman, Elijah Wood, Stanley Tucci, John Krasinski, William H. Macy, and this is a pattern that happens a lot of all of the, the previous... Yeah, they get they get good voice they get good talents to be these actors, and not necessarily people you think of as voice cast people, just people just people that are you know guys like, but not like because they got Liam Neeson for Ponyo, and I was Liam like that's an interesting choice. He doesn't really doesn't do. It was like Liam, yeah, it was Castle Liam, in the Sky. I, think I was thinking of last time. But Ponyo was Liam Neeson, Matt Damon, and like Tina Fey, and it was like, all right, that's yeah. interesting. <laughs> I remember watching that on Netflix, and I was thinking, I just can't do it. I have to wait for the dub because. I just I just needed to have the dub. Yeah, I needed to see the original first. So really waited a long time to get a hands my hands on the DVD and watch uh, with the original Japanese voices. I saw the um, this is uh, Hayao Miyazaki did the screenplay, but he did not direct it. But the Secret of Arietti. Yeah. And I, I thought the U.S. dub mm-hmm. for that was fine. Yeah, we I, I was okay. Yeah, I love Will Arnett. I think I think Aaron and I both read that Will Arnett. Or, I mean, more than fine. I mean, I, I thought it was good. So, like, that that was an example where I, I wasn't distracted by, you know, who was... I don't think the voices for me weren't famous enough to, to know who was doing them. So. They weren't... What, and I, mean, this I know is, Carol Burnett did uh, one of the voices in yeah. the... I mean, yes. Yeah, I, I think the... What I'm getting at is, I guess, yeah, they don't... While they, they certainly cast big-name voices, they don't cast people that are voice actors, necessarily, so they don't really think of them as standing out as a certain person's voice and more as just it it can be it can have an effect as you're like oh who's that doing that voice but at the same time it's not a person that has a voice that's super distinctive where you're like i can't think of anybody else but that person it's just more of oh that's the person that did that voice right we did we talked about uh, abe and i we did we reviewed um arietti last year with the lorax i believe actually (laughs) we had a double (laughs) dose of animation that year and and, wow one of those is good who doesn't love Danny devito right <laughs> okay, well, I think assuming all the edits went right, I think we've had quite the episode so far in terms Woo! of film content. So let's get let's get to a few things before we wrap up here. Uh let's do a little out now presents what's out now. These are movies that are coming out on DVD and Blu-ray this week and we got a number of them actually. Uh first up we have Rush. Oh. Yay. I know both on both of your guys' top 10 lists and certainly a big honorable mention for me. Rush is quite good and very sad that it was shut out completely from the Oscars this year. Stupid lone survivor taking the sound nominations away from Rush. <laughs> um, I mean, I wanted Rush to get that. That was fine. I wanted uh, Daniel, Daniel Bruhl to yes. get a nomination. Like I wanted some major nominations. But... Okay. Bradley Bradley Cooper's tight perm. He, he was he, he knocked him out. He's got people working for him now, right, Mom? <laughs> um, what else? Um, Cloudy of a Chance of Meatballs Part Two. Generally, something hey. happened. After that. <laughs> I know I was a big fan of it. I, I laughed a lot. Chester I Beattie, liked it. One of my, one of my I, villains of the year. Yeah. Um, let's see. Last Vegas. The um, I believe the no. the 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 third out it. of the third out of four De Niro mishaps that happened last year. Uh, Dude's getting paid though. 
I, I hope. Um, the fifth estate. Did anyone else see the fifth estate? Because I saw it. I, I is, have not seen it. I listened to your recommendation and I avoided it. That is not a good movie. <laughs> that is. <laughs> oh, Go to Wikipedia to learn more about WikiLinks and not the fifth estate. <laughs> That's too bad too because it has a cast. Yeah. Could have been Benedict. Benedict it has a good cast. It has. Yeah. You can see, you you can see how I'm not in the minority on that one because no one talks about the fifth estate anymore. Uh, that did not get on anybody's top ten list, uh, as many some some would have assumed it would have. Well, well I mean, it was on somebody's top ten list, but then the they had to wipe it from the internet because you know it revealed too much information. There you go. Yeah. And lastly, we have Metallica through the Never hitting DVD Blu-ray this week. I did not see it, but I think. You guys saw it. I saw it and Jimmy O saw it, and we had a ton of fun because I'm not even a huge Metallica fan, but this movie was just fun to watch in terms of just being a, like a a big concert film with like a a speck a speck of narrative added to it in the form of Dane DeHaan running through post-apocalyptic LA. Like it's just like <laughs> oh, this is fun. <laughs> like it, I imagine the sound on the Blu-ray will be great. Like it's just such a, a elaborate rock show. But yeah, Metallica through the never. Uh, not bad. Uh, so would you say uh, you it, it you need to be a fan of Metallica to enjoy it, or you think you could enjoy it I w- without? I think you can enjoy it without. I mean, you, I'd say you'd be, you need to be a fan of you know rock music, perhaps. But I mean, it, it's basically a, a greatest hit set of, of Metallica songs. So I mean, if you've ever enjoyed a Metallica song, go for it. If you're if you know, if it's not your style of music, there's no reason to really check it out just because it's all of that in a in a 90 minute music video. But uh. Yeah, I mean, it's it's not going to show you anything new. So, but what is Dame DeHaan doing in it? It so basically the movie has a giant. It's a okay. giant. It's, there's a very big concert going on, and in parallel with the concert, Dame DeHaan has this kind of side story where he plays like a group. He plays like a roadie who has to retrieve something for them, and so the movie has this kind of fantastical side narrative of him traveling the streets of a post-apocalyptic L.A. And it cuts back and forth between his journeys through L.A. and the giant rock concert that's going on in, in the Staples Center. Okay, if it's largely a documentary. I mean, it's largely the concert. Yes, like it's yeah. it's it's maybe it's like eighty percent concert, twenty percent Dane DeHaan running around. So it's not it's not the movie that you're like, oh man, Dane DeHaan's in this. I need to see it. Like that's not the reason to go to this movie. He says like one word in it. I think too. Like he has no. It's just like, hey, Dane DeHaan signed up for some reason. Good for him. There's a lot of words I just said for the Metallica through the Never movie. <laughs> uh, next week's show, um, certainly brighter than this week, which only had I Frankenstein featured as a new release. We have uh, Labor Day, the new film from Jason Reitman, and That Awkward Moment, starring the spectacular now is Miles Teller, Fruitvale Station's Michael B. Jordan, and High School, Mus- High School Musical 3's Zac Efron. Um, <laughs> I thought you were going to mention 17 again, Zac Efron. 17. I mean, that's a better movie. School, I should have said that. High Musical <laughs> It's a good Matthew Perry movie. I know, 17 again's not bad. Yeah. <laughs> you should decide how to play basketball. Put that on the commentary list, 17 again. <laughs> the the Paperboy's Zac Efron. Oh, God, the Paperboy. <laughs> oh, oh, boy. Oh, who said jellyfish? Um, Yeah, so Abe and I will talk about either one of those or both. We'll see. We'll see what we get to. That's that's what's on the docket for next week, so we'll see what happens with that. Um. See. You know, yeah. you know what, uh, you know what next week also brings. What it brings us closer to the Lego Movie. It does bring us closer to the Lego Movie. That's true. Very. Yeah. True. Can't wait. Oh my god, so excited for the Lego Movie. <laughs> <laughs> I, you know, I know how excited I am for the Lego Movie. There was like just an explosion on the internet for the Raid Two this week, and yet I still think I'm a little more excited for the Lego Movie than I am for the Raid Two, <laughs> and I'm really excited for the Raid Two. 
Um, but yeah, that's that's that. That's we're pushing that aside for now. Let's get to the end here. That's gonna do it for this week's episode about now. <laughs> you can find more of my work on my personal site, thecodezeke.com. You can find all my written movie reviews as well as at wisebluecom for my blue all my blue reviews. Uh, also at twittercom PS4. Abe. You can find more fun stuff at walrusmoose.blogspot.com and twittercom walrusmoose. Hashtag LMNOP Factory. And Mark Hoban. And you can find more of my work on my personal blog, fastfilmreviews.com. And you can also follow me on Twitter. Award winning. And you can also follow me on Twitter, Mark underscore Hoban. Great. You can, of course, find all the other episodes about now with Aaron and Abe on iTunes and at Stitcher, as well as hhwlod.com. That is the podcast network site that hosts our show along, along with other great shows, including the Walking Dead TV podcast, the Long Box of Doom, the Icapod Cranecast, which I co-host with friends of the show Maxwell and Brandon, and other shows about comics and games and fun stuff like that. Is the Icapod Cranecast on hiatus right now? It is because we just did the, we recapped the two-part season finale, which is available, but I should announce that in April, or May, May, the, the series 24 begins again, and Brandon, Maxwell, and I are going to be starting a limited podcast for the new season of 24. Boom. You can also find all of our episodes over at outnow.podomatic.com, as well as youtube.com slash outnowpodcast. Feel free to email us, outnowpodcast at gmail.com. Let us know how wrong Abe might be about drug war, how wrong we <laughs> might be about the great beauty, or any other venting frustrations you may have with the hunt. Why Rush didn't get nominated for anything. Anything like that. Just email us, outnowpodcast at gmail.com. Awesome. Yeah. Interact with us over at facebook.com slash outnowpodcast and tweet at us at twitter.com slash podcast. And feel free to follow us on Tumblr, outnowpodcast.tumblr.com. We put up picture, pictures and various random posts and things like that. And, of course, we have our voicemail line, 972-798-3830. You can send us a voicemail and it can be you know, a question or comments on the show, what have you. We'll be happy to listen and maybe even play them on the show. So, yeah, that's going to do it for this extended bonus episode where we covered quite a bit i i'm proud i'm happy of this yeah a lot done covered here. a lot of ground i'm i'm so those segments were seamlessly integrated <laughs> indeed they were <laughs> so uh yeah thank you mark for joining us once again yeah thanks for having me of course and until next time so long and goodbye Broken
Skype hug.